Friday, May the 29th. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Hope everyone's had a nice week. As, uh, we're going to have a horse racing heavy episode on uh, on this edition. We're going to talk some Churchill Downs Saturday Stakes races with Scott Shapiro. Then we're going to jump into the late pick five at Churchill Downs, which does include those stakes races with Darren Zocali. I'm going to go through Santa Anita early part of the card, and then with Darren Zocali, we also talk about the Santa Anita 7th race, which is the Honeymoon, and the ninth race on Saturday, which is a really good maiden special weight, contentious-looking field, a big group. They're going a mile and an eighth, so lots of fun to discuss that there. I'm going to go through some of your best bets. Don't forget, folks, if you follow on social media, on Twitter, it's me, Gino B. Over on Facebook, I've been posting... Um, over the last couple of weeks, want to try to do uh, those uh, the segments again where we read through your best bets. But I generally have to get them in a little bit early, so that way when I record the show, it can be out a day in advance. So sometimes I need to, you know to get the Saturday plays from you by maybe Thursday, Thursday evening, or a, a day or two in advance. So make sure to to follow along for that. We're gonna recap Billions episode four from season five, and then this week's. Old Wrestling Rewatch. It's going to be with Darren Zocali and Andrew Champagne. We're going to talk King of the Ring, 1993. Brett the Hitman Hart wins three matches throughout the night to win the King of the Ring. Hulk Hogan makes his final appearance in WWF until uh, 2002. So a fun show here, and we're going to get right into the horse racing. So we're going to start with Scott Shapiro. Talking Saturday stakes from Churchill Downs. And uh, then it'll be Darren Zocali talking that late pick five from Churchill. And then following that one, I'm going to recap my selections um, and kind of just give some quick overall thoughts on that Churchill card. So kick back and enjoy lots of Churchill Saturday discussion on the late part of the card. First up, Scott Shapiro. Okay, so while I had Scott Shapiro on the line talking with me about the Friday races from Churchill. Uh, Churchill's Saturday card actually came out really early, but as we're recording this, it's still only Wednesday evening, so the morning line isn't quite out. We can assume and make guesses on the horses that are going to take money. Um, so we're going to just talk about the two stakes races uh, that'll help you out with. I mean, Scott, how about another awesome late pick five sequence uh, on uh, on Saturday at Churchill huh? that starts with the grade three winning colors? Yeah, $500,000 guaranteed again. It got, I think, uh, over a million dollars last Saturday. Not as much star power, but I think people are pretty locked in at Churchill, so I would expect it to be uh, be up there once again. So the one thing to mention, and I, I will uh, also get uh, talk let you know, I cheated again today. I listened to some of your podcasts with, uh, with Bob Ike <laughs> earlier where you covered some of these races, so I sort of know – Sort of your uh, your opinion in, in in a bit in some of the spots, but we do got to mention a uh, break even and uh, take charge angel are both entered in a race on Thursday, and why that's really important in this race, Scott, is they're probably the the two most prominent speeds in this race, or at least two of maybe three that are going to be in it early, and so if one or two of them is out of this race, it will definitely change the complexion. Yes, they're both entered for a uh, as MTOs, main track only for the uh, turf sprint on Thursday. There is rain in the forecast, so it's in the the realm of possibility uh, that the race could get washed off. My guess is just a hypothesis. If it gets washed off, that break even will stay in the winning colors. Yet, Take Charge Angel will probably opt for the easier no. spot. Yeah, which if that happens. 
you got a situation where, to me, break even is is loose on the lead. She's yep. already probably too fast for even take charge Angel to keep up with. But this would really seal the deal, and break even would be loose and lonely. Absolutely key to mention, and and even the I guess the opposite way, like I would upgrade take charge Angel quite a bit if for some reason break even went the other way. So we'll know obviously by Saturday because that would be uh, on Thursday. So we'll know if we see these horses run on Thursday that they they won't be back here on Saturday, and we can at least adjust the handicapping a little bit more. So I guess we're at least starting with them from a pace perspective, a pace standpoint, and with break even, but. When we look towards the outside of the field, there are a couple horses who have some some pretty strong credentials uh, with Spice Perfection, who's now coming into the Marcassi barn for the first time. And then in particular, Mia Mischief, who is a grade one winner and who has been really, really good as of late. She's about as versatile as they come, Scott. Yeah, and the outside draw is perfect for her, as we saw last time in the carousel, and it's Important to note, they spent $2.4 million uh, at the after her uh, Dream Supreme effort at Churchill. A lot of times a uh, grade one winning uh, mayor will be, a Philly at the time, but a mayor now, will be uh, retired to uh, make, make the bucks off of her. But they thought enough of how she finished the year and what they expected of her this year, Stone Street Stables and Steve Asmussen, to bring her back. And it's far from surprising that she's been as good as she has ever been, in my opinion, uh, in these starts, especially last time out. And the thing about her is, you know, break evens fast, real fast. So she won't stop right off of her, but she's got the tactical speed to stay close enough that mm-hmm. with the way she's been finishing, she's going to be one tough customer, even for a Philly as fast as break even. Yeah, she did it to Kofivi. You know, last yep. year when when Kofivi was kind of like right in the middle of of becoming a very very nice filly, and she just sat right off of her at Churchill Downs and just pounced and just kind of put her away, and then she she went off for him a little bit, but she's really gotten back into it now. She can stalk, and as you mentioned, that outside draw is really really key for her. So. I wouldn't, depending on what, what happens with the break even and scratch, you know, I wouldn't talk anyone off of singling a horse like Mia Mischief, who could definitely be a, a good way to get your pick five started and maybe give you some coverage down the line. She's not a favorite in any way that I'm, or a, a horse that's going to take a lot of money that I'm going to be worth, uh, I think, is willing to try to beat in here. I agree. And, and it's kind of a shame that there isn't going to be a lot of speed signed on in here, even with break even and take charge angel with Julian Le Peru on take charge angel. I, I expect her, him to be smart. First, I don't think she's fast enough to keep up with break even second off. I think he knows he has no chance if he goes with her. So I think he's going to sit off and they're going to sit one, two with Mia mischief sitting third because it's a shame because of the princess causeway is a horse that I really think yeah. has a nice year ahead and maybe future uh, sprinting from off the pace. She has shown a tremendous turn of foot in both of her recent uh, one-turn races, the Churchill three back. She finished with a full of run. Uh, and then last time at Gulfstream was just incredibly impressive running down that group. Um, and she doesn't, she lacks early speed, but she gets out of the gate well, which is important because it lets it lets Chris Landeros relax her right away instead of kind of having to catch up a little bit. Um, but it's just not a good spot for yeah. her. So maybe we can, you know, write down she runs a good fourth against the flow of the race and we can get excited to better back. Yeah, I agree. She's good enough to beat a group like this. She really is with the with the right kind of trip. But she just, I don't think she's going to get it today I mean, even the horse that she beat A couple times back, that race at Churchill in November She beat Wo Nelly, who came back And, and looked really good over at Oaklawn you know? So yep. she can she can compete with the top level Phillies, and I think, as you mentioned This is a good 
this is a good trip for her, but just not a, a necessarily a race that that is going to shape up well. Uh, I think for her, when as we expect, probably one of these uh, speed horses to be uh, out of this race. So probably short. We're going to probably be shortening up maybe to start to pick five here with me and mischief. If that sound probably like, I think so. And I mean, depending on what you think of the rest of the sequence, we'll talk about the the final leg. But if you're chalky or with and don't like prices in the middle legs. Uh, singling, you know, is the way to go, whether it's me and mischief or break even. If you maybe, if you like some prices in some of the other races, I'm okay with going too deep. I feel like they're a little bit a cut above and, you know, and, and don't assume that one of them is going to be out. Uh, it, it's supposed to rain here some, but we've kept the races on the turf so far. And because they're running uh, in lane two uh, on Thursday and Friday on the turf, they might be a little more aggressive to not worry about having to take the stake off or having any issues with the cur- turf course. Okay, the second stakes race on Saturday is going to be race number 11. And talk about another loaded group. This is the grade three mint julep. And I mean, this is grade one quality here, Scott, a loaded field. But at first glance, and I heard you, you know, starting to make the, the case for this a little bit, there is not a ton of speed in here at all. And the old Mitchell Road would have a couple lengths on this field early. Yeah, the old Mitchell Road would, um, for sure. But the outside draw and has been struggling to get out of the gate. And um, Talamo not necessarily the, the best at getting horses out of the yeah. gate. So if he breaks a little off or he doesn't, or she, I'm sorry. Yeah. If she breaks a little slow or she, you know, she may have to work to get to that front, and it's just been a declining pattern for her. So I, I, I was so I high think, on her coming into this year. I thought she was going to take that next step forward. I picked her in a couple of in a fantasy league that I'm in too, and I've always been super high. And she looked like if she's if she's got anything left, she should be able to get like run well in here because by by the way this pace shape is. She should be able to do that if she does not run well in here. At least getting out of the gate, showing some of her speed, and uh, maybe getting some sort of like a minor share, then then she's going to be tough. It, it, she she doesn't have that kind of speed because she's never going to really be in a field where she's got the best turn of foot, you know. Mm-hmm. So that it, it puts her in between a lot of the times. Um, another horse I just want to mention because I think we talked either the last one of the last couple times that Zofel ran we uh, we talked on either my show or your show or one of them and i remember cuz Zofel was a horse that a lot of people were were very high on last time out but then she was in a race that ended up looking on paper like it was going to have a ton of speed but newspaper of record scratched out of that race and i think another one or one of the speed horses scratched out and it kind of changed the complexion a little bit um again though on paper in a race that doesn't look like it has a ton of speed what do you think about a, a filly like her yeah, I love this horse from a pure talent perspective and love watching her unleash that late run. But from the outside post and the lack of speed and the high-quality animal she's facing, uh, it's another horse kind of in the same vein as Princess Causeway in the uh, winning colors that, you know, you you kind of want to keep an eye on. Maybe she runs fifth by four against the flow of the race and, and you better back next time. But uh, just going to have too much to do, I think, to, uh, yeah, so- without a lack of speed. So some horses to mention, um, I think down towards the inside in particular, Brad Cox looked like he has two really live contenders in this spot. Um, Juliet Foxtrot, probably a little more tactical, can show some speed, can sit, should be able to save a ton of ground from the inside. Her losses have really only been to quality animals. And then right next door, 
Um, Bo Recall was a horse, you know, I'm sure you had, had followed and I followed up for a while in Southern California and was always one of those, you know, knocking on the door, would, you know, show up and win a graded stakes here and there, but would, you know, lots of underneath finishes and then completely has been a different animal for Brad Cox and had a really, really good to, uh, 2019. Yeah, he's been a, she's been a little more tactical when she's needed to be, although she came, uh, one of her biggest wins was the uh, Distaff Turf Mile on Derby Day uh, when she came well out of it to run down Get Stormy and Daddy's a Legend that day. Uh, or I think Daddy's a Legend actually was behind her or, or with her. But uh, yeah, another horse, though, that might have to be more aggressive than she wants to be mm-hmm. to stay in this race. And I just can't, the more I look at this race, uh, is. I, I think Juliet Foxtrot is probably the best horse, and she's going to get the best trip. She, she might looks be on the like beach, it, right? She really second. does. Yeah. yeah, she broke my heart, that Basilica race. Loved her that day coming in from uh, Del Mar, uh, coming in from Arlington or coming in from here to Del Mar, and she looked gone in Basilica with that tremendous heart. And then, you know, she lost to Uni, who, <laughs> you know, yeah. star, and then uh, wasn't maybe at her best in December. Uh, and still ran a good third to get Stormy, and Daddy is a legend. I just think she's better than these. She's going to get the rail trip. Uh, Mitchell Road might make the lead, but she can just, like, coast up and sit second, and I just can't see how Mitchell Road holds her off if she's, excuse me, anywhere near where she was. This is, you know, the ultimate goal has to be the Breeders' Cup this year for this horse, but, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of horses in, in the early part of the meet win over this turf course, without recency coming off a layoff so i'm not worried about that she's only gonna have to probably run the last you know quarter mile or so half mile or whatever i i think she's better than these and and, you know i I hate to be chalky in these two stakes races but i think it's bookend chalk yeah it probably and i I think you're probably right too she's another one where she just you that's one thing we have to do as handicappers we have to Try to make cases for many, but when you go through it, and if you feel like they're just going to be the, the the standout, you take them. You find a way to play them with some stuff underneath or with some better prices in the other races. And something like this, if we did that and we bookended with you know some chalk singles and spread around in the middle, you know. But it's just funny because we talked about Friday just a few minutes ago, and it just shows you what I think is why I like you as a handicapper too, is because on Friday. We literally, I think we're against all of the horses that are going to be the, the short prices in the sequence. And then when we look at these two stakes races, it's just hard to get against them, you know, and you have to take what they give you. Sometimes it's hard when we, we want to force it a lot of the time. Um, I guess there's a couple of the horses I just want to mention a bit that would maybe be horses people are looking to. Um, Nay Lady Nay and Secret Message. I thought Secret Message last year was becoming a, a very, very nice filly. She's now a five-year-old mare. And after that win at, at Woodbine, and then she was behind, even behind Sister Charlie in a pretty difficult, small little group in the Diana, mm-hmm. and she was like well overmatched. But she just, she had a little bit of trouble. She didn't really take, kind of tailed off towards the end of the year. She, I think with a with a top effort, she's definitely good enough to compete with these. But where do you stand with with those two, Nay Lady Nay and Secret Message? With Secret Message, I think Grand Motion off to a good start as one with a couple horses on the turf, including Sharing, that have come off a layoff. If you're going to get the right price, you get Johnny V, who's, been, who's riding pretty well, of course. Uh, five wins. I can't fault you if you're getting the right price. But again, probably going to have a little bit too much to do off a uh, soft pace. May Lady Nay is probably the horse that I would use second in here. And I guess the reason, other than Chad Brown, and which hurts because you never get with the, the right value 
you know, he's so good. He gets bet so much. But she's run some good races when she's been a little bit closer up off slow paces, if you look in 2019. So I think maybe if Jose Ortiz is a little aggressive, which he has not been at all. No. At the Churchill meet so far, a lot of it to my frustration. Uh, if he's a little bit more aggressive, you should sit a nice pot uh, spot. And if for some reason Julia Foxtrot doesn't fire, he may be in that right spot to take advantage. So that is race number 11 on Saturday at Churchill. That is the grade three mid julep. A couple stakes races that are deep. They have quality, but I, I kind of agree with Scott. It does look like they're favorites that I don't see as vulnerable favorites. I think they're, they're beatable, but somebody's going to have to jump up with a big race in order to beat them. And when we talk about Mia Mischief in the seventh, and then we talk about Juliet Foxtrot in race number 11. So, Scott, we double dipped here. We got a little Friday. We got a little Saturday in. I really appreciate it, buddy. Keep up the uh, the good work. I can t- I can feel it. You're sitting on a big one. You're 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 seeing the ball pretty well, but it, it you you know you just got to connect the one and then you'll you'll feel a little bit of pressure off your shoulders cuz you'll just get a little more money in the pocket and then the ball will start rolling. Um let everybody know where can we follow you along this weekend and where can we find your selections and what's your schedule going to be like? Yeah, appreciate you having me on in the kind words, Gino. Uh first social media you can follow me at on Twitter at Scott Shap 34 You can follow my picks for every day at Churchill Downs. This meet at churchilldowns.com under expert picks. Mine along with Ed DeRosa and Joe Christofek. They're up uh, usually uh, sometime late morning at the latest. That's, that's the final ones after scratches. Try to get some of those up a little earlier, um, you know, when when possible. And then uh, do some writing still uh, a little bit at twinspires.com when Churchill's going. When Churchill's not going, do plenty on that. And then the Who Do You Like podcast over the Bet America Radio Network. Have Bob Ike on this week. We broke down the uh, Saturday Late Pick 5, which I'm sure you'll do as well. Maybe I'm, maybe not. But, yep, uh, yep. It, it, okay, yeah. Um, but we'll be, but if you want an alternative opinion to Geno's after you listen to him, uh, check that out. But I do that usually uh, every week and up either on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Usually Thursday, but a little bit of uh, chaos. Uh, being up at the track a lot more than I, usual I, I didn't know what was going on I'm, no, I'm so used to hearing Bob Ike's voice <laughs> Only in the mornings on the Saturday and Sunday radio shows And I was like listening I was like this isn't Saturday morning This isn't Sunday morning that I've heard for so many years So it's good to hear a familiar voice Back on there too A man who's done a, a hell of a job handicapping Southern California For many years And uh, he's been kind of shifting his focus around a little bit lately So Scott thanks again buddy Great uh, great job uh, Always fun talking with you And good luck this weekend And I uh, love following you along Make sure to let Ed no um, a great job Handicapping that pick five their day that he hit I know he was a little sour because you guys Were making him look bad the first week And then he came back now and he had a big score So I'm sure he's I'm sure he's probably rubbing it in your face A little bit right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah maybe a little bit but not too bad Joe, Joe needs a couple hits He's uh, He's been a little frustrated But yeah hopefully I can connect I, I'll, You know what sign us up for that Pick four on Friday if we can hit that All will be well yeah. in the world that could pay really well if our opinions are come to fruition. It will, and I'm sure the biggest compliment that you've received um, in years was uh, ITP giving you some sort of love at, at Churchill Downs. <laughs> with uh, I do agree, you guys do a great job over there. You are definitely very better friendly. You give a lot more handicapping kind of stuff than than a lot of the other simulcasts do. You guys are players as well. You're playing a lot of the races, so I, I enjoy following you along there and uh, keep up the good work, buddy. Thanks, man. Great, great chatting. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was uh, Scott Shapiro. Don't go anywhere, folks. We're just going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on That's What G Said. 
A big thank you to Scott. Uh, he's a great uh, handicapper and a, a good follow, too. You, you know where you can follow along with him on social media. And we discussed that race before we had the morning lines out, so we weren't we couldn't really get into the odds uh, part of it. But we we had a pretty good idea of where the, the money was going to be, uh, be lying for the most part. So thanks again to Scott Shapiro. Now we're going to break down the entire late pick five sequence on Saturday with Darren Zocali. So Churchill Downs late pick five. We start in race number seven. We go through that pick five sequence on a really fun Saturday card. Kick back and enjoy. Got a friend joining me this week to talk a little horse racing, and we're going to bounce around from Santa Anita to Churchill. We're going to start over at Churchill Downs, and we're going to talk about a late pick five sequence that includes a couple of stakes races. You actually heard a little bit of uh, thoughts on the stakes races from Scott Shapiro. I had him on the the show earlier uh, in the week to talk about the Friday racing, so I I picked his brain a little bit about the the Saturday stakes when the card was out. But Darren and I are going to jump into the late pick five. Darren Zocali, been a, a frequent Visitor and a guest on that's what G said over the last few months Good friend of mine Thanks for doing this again with me buddy uh, we got a, another really solid card to look at at Churchill Yeah we do A couple of nice stakes races uh, Half million dollars guaranteed In the late pick five And man does it start up with a really cool matchup here With these Phillies going six furlongs Yeah so the Seventh race at Churchill is going to be uh, The first of the two stakes races And we now know because Break even and Take Charge Angel Were actually both cross-entered In races, but that race They were cross-entered in was earlier today And they did not run, so they're both going to be in here So from a handicapping standpoint, we know That a couple of the major speeds are going to be in here But we feel like Break Even is the the, the quickest, I mean, she's one of the quicker horses in training out there. She can absolutely run you right off your feet. And then you have, she's going to have maybe another speed forward too, but she's always the type that can put them away. And then you have the really sharp Mia Mischief, who is, I mean, she's one of the better in the distaff division right now. She's so versatile. She can stalk. She can come from a little farther off if she has to. She's drawn well. So uh, what do you think uh, as far as those two and, and how do we approach the, the start of the pick five? So, yeah, I mean, obviously, break-even is the speed of the speed. There's no question about it. But that being said, she hasn't had a horse like Mia Mischief up to this point breathing down her neck. And mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a moment here on the far turn where Mia Mischief, you know, draws alongside her. And I just think Mia Mischief is the better horse. Uh, she loves Churchill Downs, loves Churchill Downs. She's ramping up for her five-year-old season. She could not have looked any better down at Oaklawn, uh, to say the least. Um, you know, you take a look back through her through her lines. You know, bad race in the Ballerina at seven, probably not her best dis- the best distance. Bad race in the Breeders' Cup, filling in mare sprint. But other than that, I mean, this is this is a mare that can pretty much throw it down with any filling in mare sprinting in the country. I expect her to sit just off the speed. I think she goes by. Uh, break even here, probably outside the eighth pole. And I think she's going to have to hold off Spice Perfection, who's making her first start back in five months. Uh, you know, not at her best in the inside information at Gulfstream, where she made the lead and tired. She's cutting back to six furlongs, a distance that she's a perfect three for three at. So I think that's going to move her up here. And I think she might offer a bit of a price and get overlooked. So uh, believe it or not, I'm taking a stand against break even here. Yeah. Because presence of me and mischief i'm going too deep to start spice perfection and me and mischief yeah i can see that um and even the one the one race that that jumps out to me is in a similar situation with a really fast filly named kofidi last year 
I mean, mm-hmm. that was a really fast Philly who can run them off their feet, and Mia Mischief just stalked her and then put her to sleep. You know, and and that's what. An older, more experienced type can probably do to break even in here. And if you're looking for an a one more price horse and maybe on some deeper tickets, I think Princess Causeway is kind of interesting. Sprinting, um, will will need the trip. I just I don't know if she's going to be able to run by Mia Mischief late. But if Mia Mischief gets hooked up and is maybe a little bit too close and gets caught up trying to put a little too much pressure on break even, maybe a horse like Princess Causeway can come by them all late. Um, I think I would prefer her a little bit more though If this was uh, just a, a tad bit longer If we were going like six and a half or seven So from a, um, like a pick five approach Are you thinking about singling Mia to start right off the bat? Uh, I th- I think I'm going to also use Spice Perfection Spice Perfection, oh those think, two, yeah, 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 yeah yeah. Those two. Okay. yeah, I would be a little bit concerned That maybe they go a little too hot and heavy up front Spice Perfection is a grade one winner or sub She won the Madison last year She won the TCA at Keeneland uh, You know, on her best She's good enough to win this race and, uh, you know, I'll let break even beat me, but I won't let Spice Perfection beat me. We move on to race number eight at Churchill, which kicks off your late pick four sequence. And these, um, yeah, the, this eighth, ninth, tenth, um, and the eighth and tenth in particular, I thought were, uh, were, were fun. This race, man, I, I'm looking at a ton of different horses I could make cases for. We're going to have maiden specials going a mile and a sixteenth here. These are three year olds and upward. Um, you have a horse like, I mean, I'm going to mention a bunch Aztec Empire, I think If you throw out the last race where he was kind of chasing a, a situation Where it wasn't lone speed But violent pass, because broke on top And then sat second, ended up winning You have Mao Mao, who's a Mott second timer Who you just expect is going to get a little better And he was a little sneaky in his I don't think the D-Wayne Lucas first timer can win But I, I did hear that, that this horse Has actually got a little bit of ability But could you believe the coach Looking up numbers is one for his last 126 with first time starters. D. Wayne Lucas. <laughs> that's one that's tough to believe. I mean, look, what a country can maybe bounce back. Bear Alley, obviously. But you have to start with Ash I Am, I think, and how you're playing this race from a you know a multi-race exotic standpoint, putting the blinkers on. This horse didn't do any really anything wrong last time out there, and he, he was the favorite. He closed well late. Now he adds the blinkers. You I mean, any improvement likely probably wins this. I think it's probably like the the greedy guy in me looking at the sequence and wanting this race to be a race I need to I need to find a price. Yeah, I, you know, I'm so conflicted here because this is absolutely a horse that I would normally try to beat. Um, but the, you know, it's coming out of a race. The winner Basquiat is that is that Chad Brown like thing that I'm I'm actually surprised it didn't go up favored last time because it had a lot of like you know social media steam. Big workouts going into it. It's an American pharaoh out of a distorted humor mare that has a chance to really be a runner. And, uh, you know, this horse was a good second, closed well behind that one. You know, if, if he runs back to that race, he's going to win. Um, but, you know, his first race didn't do a whole lot for me. And, and you know, I this horse is just kind of like, eh, these types for Pletcher with me. Um, but that being said, I mean, you look through this field, you know, Aztec Empire two and three back, you know, on sloppy and good surfaces, you know, I'm a little bit suspect there that his two best efforts come on and off track. Um, you know, so I'm a little bit concerned about that. If there's a horse that I expect to improve, it's probably Mau Mau, um, you know, second start for Mott Empire Maker. Medallia door on the dam side. The horse is bred to run all day long. Um, you know, I'll definitely use that one in here. 
what a country, you know, has a chance to, to move forward, although Gary Hartwidge, you know, is O for the year. The jockey is O for the year, so I'm a little bit suspect there. Bear Alley's got speed. Two back was good. Last race was better on turf. I mean, there are certain angles here that you can go with. Um, I do think that if if Asheham runs back to that last start, everybody's running for second. So that being said, I'm going to have a main ticket that's going to have Mau Mau and, and Asheham on it. And then I'll have smaller tickets that I will include uh, Aztec Empire, uh, What a Country, and Bear Alley as well. But I do concede that the favorite is probably going to be difficult here. Yeah, I think you made a good point in here. We're looking at a lot of a lot of the other horses that we mentioned, and they do have to improve. They do have to step up. We are projecting and and assuming that they will. But if Ashiam doesn't, he just has to run the same type of race, and that would beat this group because that's a better race than anybody else in here has run. So yeah, he's he's a horse that I have a yeah I have a tough. This is one of the the tougher horses for me to 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 get a feel for in the sequence. Um, but uh, he, he's definitely got some ability. And we'll see what price he ends up being in the start of your late pick four as we move to race number nine, which is a turf sprint. They're gonna be going five and a half furlongs. We have a uh, second level allowance, optional sixty two claimers. So five and a half furlongs, lots of different directions to go. You have what look to be a couple of speed horses in here. I'm gonna start with the eight. Um. Cardamon, who is a, a Billmont runner who who just beat a first level allowance group in the slop at Oaklawn on April the fourth. When you go through her career, she really hasn't done a whole lot wrong. She won her debut on the dirt seven furlong, kind of that tricky in between. She came back and she just kind of missed the break and she never really got into it when she was the heavy favorite when she faced winners for the first time. Her final start of twenty nineteen wasn't bad. She showed some speed. She finished third going a mile, probably farther than she wants to go. And then she returned to the races in April. She was pretty good that day. Um, I, you know, she was four wide. She was just off. She was and she was three deep. She moved the lead without really being asked. She's got a big turf pedigree too. She's going to try the grass for the first time. She's a half to emollient and uh, another horse named Courtier. They're both multiple winners on the grass and very and showed a ton of ability. I think this is a really nice spot cutting back to five. I don't think she needs the lead. I think she has enough speed to sit close, or five and a half. I think she has enough speed to sit close and maybe get a stalking kind of trip like she sat in her debut. So for me, this might be a horse that I, if I get aggressive, this might be one of the horses I try to get aggressive with. I will mention the 11. I kind of have them as maybe on my top tier of horses in this in this spot. Yeah, the eight is really interesting here, Cardamon. You mentioned being a half to Amalian, also a half to Hofberg as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you kind of looking at it, you know, Amalian was a mile and an eighth, you know, a mile and a, I mean, a grade one runner and a mile and a quarter. Uh, you know, Hofberg obviously ran in the Belmont, ran in the Derby, uh, was a winner at a mile and an eighth. So it's kind of interesting that this horse is going five and a half on the turf. Yeah. Why pioneer out of the Nile? It's not like that there's any kind of sprinter pedigree. So it's it's interesting that Mott has identified this horse with all of that stamina in the pedigree as being one that might relish this particular trip. Uh, that's a good enough reason for me, second race back off the layoff, to use this horse for sure. 
another horse that I think is interesting is the five. I'll handle all the cash. Um, one start on the year in the Captiva Island going five at Gulfstream. Really had a pretty rough trip there. Uh, and you take a look back. Look at the previous five races. Draw a line through the um, through the debut at Belmont going a mile in the 16th. Everything else from there is good. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, horse came back first time, paired up the 84 buyer speed figure off the layoff, going five at Gulfstream. Horse is going to rally here, you know, uh, gets the extra half of furlong, uh, comes off a troubled trip. Think that there's more ability here than, than her uh, win price is going to reflect. And, and I'm going to include her quite a bit when I'm playing uh, the vertical exotics and the horizontal exotics. So, um, you know, you, I, I understand you're going to go 8 and 11 a, a lot. For me, my two key horses on my main ticket are going to be 5 and 8. I'll, ha- I'll include the 1 and the 11 on some smaller backup tickets. I'm going to try to beat the Wesley Ward Philly uh, going back to the grass here. I'm hoping that they uh, can run her into the ground. Yeah, I actually gonna you know, I play it similar. You know, I have a couple multiple. I always like to have multiple tickets and kind of um, in a spot where I'll maybe shorten up and then shorten up in a different spot on the other ticket. So for me, the you know in this race, if it after eight and eleven, I definitely you know you mentioned the one, you mentioned the five as others, the six um, is, is the obvious Wesley Ward horse who we're both trying to beat. I. You know the seven. I don't like the fact that we haven't seen her since December. I wouldn't completely talk you off of her though, and, and maybe hitting a hitting the ticket at a price. Although Ortiz has not necessarily been riding uh, all that well to start, and this might be a tough place to try to navigate a, a trip like that. But yeah, I mean, a, a fun race. This is one of the more fun races in the pick four sequence because the horses that we like are you know are horses that are going to be at least middle type prices um, when it when the wagering uh, starts. So fun ninth race. Where Darren likes the five um, I like the eight a little bit And uh, we'll also include uh, a couple others In some of our exotics Let's go to race number ten And we I guess we will start talking with The three horses that are going to take Most likely the bulk of the uh, Action in here And I think you have to start with Fearless Who Super impressive winning the first couple at Gulfstream There was just something a little bit weird though About those races I don't know who knows how great they were Beat some productive horses that came back to win Um, Then Fearless comes back And doesn't really run well In the New Orleans Kind of misses the break Was actually favored that day But that race has come back decent By my standards was in there And actually Silver Dust came back and ran pretty damn well The other day out of that race And then Fearless hooks Dumpf who, when Fearless completely misses the break and comes rolling late, and uh, Dumpf was the horse who Diodoro claimed and moved up a ton uh, first off the claim. So, w- what do you do with this horse in here, Darren? You know, I, I think out of the out of the favorites, I would have the most confidence in Fearless running well. Um, you know, not a need the lead type by any stretch of the imagination. Has versatility. Closed from a country mile behind last time. Has also won sprinting while pressing the pace. So there's talent there. You know, top seed is sprinting out, is stretching out, going from six and a half to a mile and a sixteenth in a race that's got a couple of horses that are sprinting out that have a little bit of speed to them. So I think you're going to get a lively clip in this race. So I'm a little bit against top seed. Gunnett is another horse with speed. You know, I have concerns about that last race in the New Orleans. Why was it so bad? Seem to be real keen, you know, early on in the race and maybe can get back. But 
this race to me has the makings of something wild happening. Um, fearless, sure, can absolutely step up and win. I have the most confidence. But again, the eight sprinter stretching out question. Gun it coming off of a, a race that, that you have a question mark on. The 11 Lone Rock is really interesting for me at a huge price. And could it just be that this horse hates Oaklawn Park? I mean, you can very easily make excuse. And if you just cross out the Oaklawn races, the form looks so much better on paper. Yeah. And not just the last two. Because if you go back to last spring, this horse ran four times at Oaklawn in three difficult optional claimers uh, and the Razorback. And the horse was bad, to say the least. Before that, earned the 95 buyer speed figure winning a, a stake at Remington. Before that, won an optional $100,000 event with a 91 buyer speed figure at Churchill. What did he do after he got out of Oakland? Okay, tough race at Keeneland. Improved the Churchill, ran, ran third. Won a race at Aqueduct, a tough optional claimer with a 91. Ran in the General George behind Forenze Fire. Not a bad race, running fourth. Ran fourth behind Diamond King and American Anthem in the Stymie. 92, 91, 91. These buyer speed figures put this horse right in the mix. Then goes back to Oaklawn. Two disgustingly terrible races, and now gets away from Oaklawn again. Should get us some, you know, pace set up. I don't love the outside draw, but this horse is probably going to be twenty-five to one. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's ways to make cases for a horse that has run fast enough to win this race in the past. So, you know, look, I'm probably going to play one wise guy ticket where I actually single this horse and get some coverage elsewhere. Cause if he wins, I want to be sure. awesome. Absolutely. You want to hit it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I will be using several in here. I'll be against, you know, a lot of the horses in here that were, you know, named horses in the past that never, you know, mounted like tis mischief plus K parfait is not going to be on my tickets. Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, that main ticket's going to be fearless gun it and lone rock, but I am going to have exact as tries supers with Lone Rock keyed up and down and trying to get this horse on the ticket. Because I, I legitimately think he has a chance to hit the board in this field. And kind of piggybacking on your point that something crazy could happen, there are two horses that I'm going to use on at least one ticket in some way, shape, or form. The one, Kazaranga, who I just think might be able to sit a nice trip from the inside, it has shown some versatility, and should just be able to save the ground in here, and is 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 an older Multiple winner who's been in graded stakes Who has faced some good horses Is just a little more tested than some of the horses Who might be taking a lot of money And then another one to mention The six Okay, Thirst for Life has not run well as of late There was a time One of my better scores was when we had I had him at 13 to 1 Where he won going a mile at Churchill He likes Churchill He likes the mile to a mile and a 16th he ran into some tough fields recently He's got some layoff lines there He's now got a race under his belt It was a race that was in on a wet track It's very easy to excuse those races when they don't get into it This is another horse who's going to be 25-30-1 to 1 maybe Who I don't mind flopping On one ticket or two And I think it's because of We just feel the favorites in this race Are a little vulnerable Not necessarily complete plays against But definitely worth using a few others In here where a fearless top seed 
will will take the bulk of the money and gun it as well. Um, all kind of their own issues, right? We just don't know how good Top Seed is, or if he wants to go long. We we don't know if Fearless is a horse who's now kind of got some gate issues, and and we don't know if if Gun it. He's kind of uh, his own worst enemy. He's been a little quirky. So yeah, definitely a, a race that's good to take a shot against some of the favorites because it does look like there's a couple spots in this sequence where we might not be able to do that. Um, and and maybe even in the last race as we move to race number eleven, the Mint Julep, which on paper is a very very strong group, a strong field, and when you look back at it, I don't think there's a ton of speed. So one horse that I will be using, and she might not be as good as she was, but I, the the Mitchell Road of last year would have a length or two on this field early from that outside draw, just sending hard. And trying to open up and slow things down She has not progressed And has not really taken a step forward this year But I'm, I'm thinking it's it's almost like Gun to her head situation in, in here Where you gotta go Joe You know what, what you gotta do from the outside there You can't try to get hooked 4 or 5 wide There's not a lot of speed Maybe she can send and clear And if she does, I think she has an opportunity I feel like the one though is gonna be Sitting a great, great trip Juliet Foxtrot is a very, very nice animal and had a great year last year Should be able to save all the ground there on the inside Brad Cox has a very strong hand With the two inside runners who both had excellent 2019s Can you find other prices In here to include um, In the pick five Honestly no I, I don't think, think so either Yeah, yeah I, I think the race runs through Brad Cox I don't know I don't have a strong feeling as to which one I'm confident is better Um if you held a gun to my head, I would say Juliet Foxtrot, you know, being second to a Breeders' Cup winner, two starts back, third behind Got Stormy, second to Basilica in, in the Navy. Um, you know, gonna work out a great inside out trip. But, you know, I mean, Bo Recall is another is another mayor that I mean, what has she done wrong in her last seven starts, uh, yeah, including a great win and, and and a good second in, in a grade one. So uh for me, you know, those two stand out. Um I don't like Nay Lady Nay. I'll tell you that. She won't be on my tickets. I don't like, I know it's Chad Brown and maybe that's suicide, uh, but I don't like four-year-olds in their first start against older, against, you know, where, where they have good-looking lines and stakes company against three-year-olds. Yes, like I agree. that's a good point. And now she's facing more older, seasoned uh, mares that have been knocking heads in graded stakes for the last year or two. I think that that's a really big step up. Uh, and I'm going to take a stand against her in this spot. Um, if the 13 Elizabeth Way and the 14 Mitchell Road drew better, I would be inclined to include them in the pick fives for the pace, for mainly for the reasons that you outlined. Um, I think it's going to be tough for them to win, mm-hmm. but those are going to be the two price horses that I include in trying to hit some vertical exotics. But, um, you know, look, if, if I'm live to the the one and two, in this leg, I will be supremely confident that one of the two of them are going to get the job done here. Yeah, and, they, and like from just a pure tactics and, and pace standpoint, they complement each other's running styles very well too. You know, we're talking about how the the horses who are the ones that have some speed in here are drawn way to the outside of the field, whereas Juliet Foxtrot, who has 
Not speed, but tactical speed Definitely enough positional speed to sit a nice trip From the inside, she should be able to save All the ground and really have every opportunity So it's going to come down to our buddy uh, uh, Florent Giraud, oh, just hoping to work out A trip for us, we, we don't need a pace in situation or In here from uh, a couple Starts back, um, we just need A nice ground saving trip from the inside I think she's going to be tough, I think she's Definitely a favorite to, to use in your, A lot of your exotics, and I, I wouldn't Yeah, I wouldn't want to leave out Bo Recall either if She's She's actually shown that she can sit a little bit closer if she has to. Um, you can she can show that dimension which she showed in the yellow ribbon. If they're not going to be going all that quick, maybe she's end up she's a length or two just a, a little closer, and, and it could be Brad Cox turning for home with the uh, the two very live runners in here. So uh, that's race number eleven in the pick five sequence. That is the closeout leg, and as you said, Darren, there are a couple price horses you might be looking to uh, to kind of. Build your tickets around And um, they seem like they come In races 9 and 10 For you with a couple horses that you're definitely Be using right the 5 in, in race number 9 And then in race number 10 the uh, the 11 Yeah exactly I, I want to try to get one of those two Horses home if I can Obviously I think you're going to Start off a little chalky uh, I, I think you're going to end a little chalky So I think those two races Just based on what the favorites look like Compared to the rest of the field and compared to the rest of the sequence, uh, in the in the ninth race for me, uh, the five and the eight, you know, who are ten to one, eight to one in the morning line, are going to be key for me. And then in the tenth race, obviously, if, if we could ever possibly get the eleven horse home, uh, it would make for a very interesting Saturday afternoon. DZ, another fun Churchill card to handicap with you. Thank you very much for helping out. Um, we're going to. Uh... Press pause on this for a second And we're going to shift the focus over to Santa Anita So uh, don't go anywhere folks We will be right back Hey big thank you to Darren Zocali As we uh, took you through that Churchill Downs Kind of late pick 5 sequence So let's kind of just recap some of uh, my thoughts In the in the races moving um, in The sequence So the 7th race The 3 horses that I'm looking at Break Even, Mia Mischief, Princess Causeway And I'm fine with singling me a mischief. I'll play two tickets: one where I single me a mischief, and one where I use the three of them. In race number eight, um, horses that I'm looking at: Mau Mau and Aztec Empire are kind of my top tier. The horses I'm the most interested in. Uh, I have one, three, six, and seven on on kind of the top tier with them. And then if on the deeper tickets, one, three, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Race number nine, it's going to be those two horses that I mentioned as the eight and the eleven that are in my top tier of horses. The eight horse, I just, I, I really love. I think it's going to be a great spot on the grass with an, uh, that nice turf pedigree. I like the uh, the last effort. There's speed, but can sit a little bit. This to me feels like a great spot for the eight, the eleven. Dixie in my Candyland with the big W last. Uh, we saw this one, so I have eight and eleven um, on the spread tickets. It would be one, five, six, seven, eight, ten, eleven. But to me. You know, eight and eleven, I'm I'm fine within a lot of spots. We moved to race number ten. This was the one that was really really difficult uh, handicapping for me. The 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 ten, I think I'm a little more okay with Gunnit than than when we talked with uh, Darren about Gunnit. But so I mean, I'm gonna figure out how to use the like one, six, seven, eight, and ten. I think it's some horses, and I'll probably throw in the horse that Darren mentioned too that he liked a little bit uh, there. Um, so 
th- this that was the one of the races that was hard in it. I might try even in, in in a spot or two, and maybe I single me a mischief. Maybe I just go too deep with Cardamon and Dixie, my Candyland, and I can shorten up. And this might be like a, a race to press all because I have the least strong opinion in race number ten of the sequence. And then in race number eleven, I'm gonna give Mitchell Road a shot from the outside and use along with the one and the two. So it'll be one, two, and fourteen for me as the uh, horses to use in all of your exotics. There, that's Churchill on. Saturday. So big thank you to Scott and to Darren for taking the time to handicap those Saturday Churchill races with us. And uh, if you listen to the the show from yesterday, Scott actually talked with us about the Friday races at Churchill too. So we uh, we really milked Scott Shapiro this week. Uh, appreciate our good buddies helping us out here. Let's take a quick break here. A word from one of our sponsors, and we're going to come back and talk a little Santa Anita Saturday. One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor, and I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, the market has, has been uh, really good. Um, we're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. Um, it's also looking great for buyers. Uh, the interest rates right now are going to be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino, besides me being uh, a full-service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. Everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, And uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com, or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com. Or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, Appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone. Santa Anita Saturday past performances. Get them out for May the 30th. I'm going to talk about the first part of the card and then we're going to get a little more in-depth in the seventh race, the stakes race with Darren Zocali, and we also talk about that ninth race with Darren. So I'll go through the card real quick, and then I'll play the uh, interview with Darren right after so you can get his opinion on uh, those couple races when you want to play some of the late exotics. In race number one, I'm going to give uh, another shot to 
the three in here swing thoughts who I used on May the 22nd and they were claimed by DeSormo and they're going to come claimed back by DeSormo and they're going to wheel this one back real quickly. She has been in some of the better open races and I think she's a great fit at this level if you if you'll look She's been a runner-up at this level two of the last three times. She doesn't take a whole ton of money, though. She will probably be a little bit closer now when she stretches back out. She's actually run well previously going long, and she should be right there with this group. I think Swing Thoughts is a must-use in the early pick five and is my top selection in race number one. Uh, Other horses I'm looking at in here, the 7 Brahms Command, I feel like... Stretching out will probably be the one to catch Coming out of that six and a half furlong sprint race The one, Warrior's Moon And the two, Oh Pretty Woman Just make a whole lot of sense in this group uh, They should be pretty tough to hold off Warrior's Moon should save a ton of ground from the inside And Oh Pretty Woman will probably be trying to come and mow them all down late So one, two, three, seven In that first leg of the pick five sequence We move on to race number two I like the three uh, a little bit in here, and that's Sensuous, who she she's coming out of a race that is a race we're going to talk about a couple different times on this card, because it was a race where a bunch of horses lined up early for the lead, and Sensuous got hooked, you know, five wide as they all lined up across the racetrack. And she broke on, he broke on top I keep, I've said she a few times this, this is a four-year-old gelding He broke really well, he was right with the leaders But unfortunately since he's drawn to the outside They all line up inside of him And he's just at the mercy of, of getting hooked wide like that That was his first start Since March of 2019 And that race was on May the 16th So, I mean, he should have gotten a lot out of that race From a fitness level That was the first time he dropped in for a maiden claiming tag also had been facing maiden special weights prior to that. Now you're going to cut back again, five and a half furlongs. It's this is the same level, the maiden twenties, the maiden twenty fives. It's like the second time against claimers, second off the bench. I'm expecting a big effort from Sensuous for a barn who's done very well with their limited numbers um, in you know in the last year or so. The number three. Sensuous. Make sure to use in all of your exotics on the slight cutback, second off the bench. I do think the six horse is the one to beat in here. That is Seize the Day Rexy on the drop. You can put a line through the race in the slop. That was facing much, much tougher last time out. This is a way softer spot for Seize the Day Rexy. In race number three, so so I'm just gonna be using the three and the six in the second. Three six. In race number three, uh, there are two horses I want to discuss. I think that the five Miss Bennett on the stretch out might be right on the engine in here. There's not a ton of zip. I think Miss Bennett is the one to catch in here stretching out. Maybe you get a little bit from TikTok and then Miss Bennett can sit right behind. I do think the horse to beat is the two Destiny's Journey returning to the dirt. Destiny's Journey is just coming out of some better races. So I will be using the two and the five in here in the early pick five. As we move on to race number four, the seven poise to strike could be really, really tough in here. I wouldn't shock, uh, I wouldn't talk anyone off of singling this gelding. He's another one who came off a very long layoff. He hadn't raced from August 24th of 2018. Shout out to my sister Chanel, birthday uh, on August 24th. From August 24th to 
May 16th of 2020. That is a long, long layoff. And Poised to Strike did not run poorly. He broke on top, and he showed speed in between, but that was that same race that we were just talking about when we we spoke about the Sensuous race in race number two. They all lined up across the racetrack, so it's just not a a race that shapes up well for Poised to Strike. And he actually rebids late, gets up to within a couple lengths before fading. Another one who should take so much out of that race And should be much, much fitter today Drawn well towards the outside Can use that speed Can sit a little bit if need be Should be even fitter Cutting back a a bit from 6 to 5.5 The other horse I'm going to use in race number 4 Is the 3, St. Jeezy This is a first time starter for Jeff Bondi A 3 year old son of Painter He's got a steady tab this barn has actually picked it back up as of late with their first-time starters. They've always been pretty capable. I think they're like three for their last 18, which is right about where they stand with firsters, but they have popped with a couple prices. You have a steady tab, a capable first-out barn. The dam was a multiple winner, small stakes placed, a couple of sibs. They're both multiple winners. That's enough in a spot like this to be a contender. The three, St. Jeezy. So in race number four, I'm just going to be using two, the three, and uh, the seven, St. Jeezy and Poise to Strike. And then in race number five, it seems like a really wide open race to me. So I think I'm going to try to use as many as I possibly can in here. That'll end up being the two, the Peter Miller firster from the rail, the three, Malachi Moxie, who was a, a pretty good, decent third at the very least when showing a little tactical speed sprinting on the turf on in March. The six... Very live-looking first-time starter for Corner. The 7, Desert Swarm. Nothing wrong with that March 1st race on the turf. The 8, Bricks, um, who is now going to go second off the short little break. And uh, I think this is a really good spot for Baltus and for Pratt to team up with one who's going to turn back to 5.5 and, a, half and uh, a Philly who's ran, or a Gelding who's run well sprinting on the turf. I, keep, I don't know why I keep calling these, uh, these boys the gals uh, today. The 9. Zero down, you know, blinkers on What's wrong with the February 7th race or the November 14th race sprinting? The November 14th race against Open was solid even with a slow start The 10 stir the pot The March 1st race was good sprinting on the turf The 11 irreproachable, I don't like the outside draw but training well This to me is a wide open race We're going to go 2, 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 So this early pick 5 sequence is going to look like 1, 2, 3, 7 with 3-6, with 2-5, with 3-7, with 2-3-6-7-8-9-10-11. bucks on that ticket. You can obviously cut some horses out here and there. If you want to cut one of those horses out and make them a single, the ticket will uh, obviously be cut in half there. So we move from race 5 to race number 6 at Santa Anita. And for me, the late pick 4 is really going to all be about the, the number 1 in race number 6, and that's Road Rager. I just think this is the quickest Philly drawing the rail from the inside in a field that doesn't have a ton of speed. So Road Rager would probably be the quickest in this field regardless of the draw, but then you're forced a little more from the inside. You're dropping out of grade two company who was behind hard not to love last time out. I think Road Rager, the one to catch from the inside. She's drawn the rail now. This is going to be her 10th start Five times She's one going six furlongs from the rail I think she's going to take him as far as she'll go 
So we're going to single the number one Road Rager in our uh, one of our pick late pick fours, and that'll give us the opportunity to get a little more coverage in the late pick three sequence. So in race number seven, a couple of horses to discuss. The two is going to be my top selection, KP Dreaming. I'll mention the nine. Absolutely respect the nine. Nine's going to be on all the tickets. But first, let's talk KP Dreaming. She had a slow start in her turf debut. And and then she she was chasing lone speed. I thought she ran on really, really well. Talk a little bit more about her with Darren. Um, Stella Star is the one that I'm going to use in all exotics. And I will probably use the one Giddy in on a ticket or two. And then after talking with Darren, who likes Croc of Oak a little bit, maybe I end up throwing in Croc of Oak on the ticket where I'm, uh, I'm singling right away with Road Rager. Croc of Oak could be a nice price. So I'm looking at this race as the 9 is hands down the one to beat. The 2 might be the one to bet. And then I'll use the 1 and the 4 in some of the other uh, exotics. In race number 8, feels like a real spread race in the sequence. Just not a strong opinion. Um, I'll be using the 3, Rational, the first-time starter for Hector Palma. Very, very capable first-out barn. The 5, Traffic Stopper, who... Had a tough start and will likely be much closer early on today. The first time starting six, Tis a Unicorn for Richard Baltus. Pratt jumps aboard. The seven, Rain Diva is going to be taking a slight drop in class. Hasn't exactly run poorly. And then uh, the 10 and the 12, the 10 Sweet Honor. Second off the, the long layoff, she's ready to improve a little bit. And the 12, keep it classy. Also similar. Drop down to, into the, the Maiden Claimers and um, this is probably the spot that, that she belonged at all along. 3, 5, 6, 7, 10, 12. And then we'll talk uh, about that ninth race uh, a little more with Darren also. I mean, the horses that I'm making, you know, legitimate cases for, so many in here. Um, what's wrong with the two who's logical and could improve? The three, World Candy, probably the one to catch. Reprobate, first time on the grass, could step forward. Darren likes the five a lot. He'll tell you why in a minute. Premier League, who I have on a lot of my, uh, will have on a lot of my tickets. The six, New Face. The, the, the eight is a New Face who you could make cases for and use. Cosmo, the seven, was a runner-up at the level on March the 8th. Um, just... The 11, Canadian Luck, two sprints to a route. Unusually handsome, wasn't bad last time out against Open at Golden Gate. Just many, many directions to go in a wide open ninth. Give you my approaches to the pick four. So the sixth race, I'm going to single the one Road Rager. I'll probably come back with the one, two, four, nine, with the three, five, six, seven, ten, twelve, with the two, three, four, five, six, seven, eleven. Now I'll play a second pick four. And in race number six, I'll just go all. It's only a field of five. So I'll go all there with two nine, with three five six ten, with three five eight eleven. Those are my plays for Santa Anita for Saturday. And we're going to get in depth a little more in the seventh and the ninth race with Darren Zocali next. So enjoy our conversation about these uh, last uh, two of the last three races coming up on Saturday at Santa Anita. Santa Anita back in running uh, also And they have a, a decent turf stakes race And a couple interesting races to look at And Darren, honestly, I'm so glad Because when uh, I, I spoke with you and said Let's talk Churchill and maybe a little Santa Anita We'll look at the stakes race And if there's any another race or two that you like And the one that you picked out at Santa Anita to talk about Would have been the exact one that I would have picked out to talk about too It's the uh, the final race on the card Which is a really, really fun looking 
uh, Maiden Special Weight going long on the grass We'll get there in a minute We're going to start with race number 7 So uh, if you're out there with your past performances Make sure you get them on out We're going to be talking Santa Anita Saturday And we're going to be talking uh, the stakes race Race number 7 that kicks things off It is the honeymoon So we, we're going to have uh, 3 year old fillies on the turf Going a mile and an eighth This is a grade 3 You have a couple horses That you're expecting to take a lot of money Laura's Light for Peter Miller Who is in the Bourbonette Oaks This is a grade 3 winner um, Has some speed too Should be right in the mix Parkour for Mandela should take some money um, One uh, Her second start on last time we saw her Stella Starr who had a brutally wide trip Kind of one of those Joel takes her a little too far back And had to go a little too wide type trips um, So those are probably the ones that are going to take The bulk of the money in here um, wh- wh- How do you see this race? You know this is one of those races Where on paper It could be as easy as it looks Where the five Laura's light Stretching out to a mile and eighth for the first time, gets hooked up here with parkour. The two of them battle it out, and neither of them have a hope in hell of holding off Stella Star uh, based off that rally in the China Doll. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the most likely result. Uh, but I'm going to throw another horse who's exiting the China Doll who I think is interesting, and it's the four Croavuk. Um, exiting the same race awful trip in the china doll i mean not only wide at times but rispoli tried to move a couple of different times had a tap on the brakes uh this horse was really really running late i know it doesn't look like it on the line but she was running probably until about the 16th pole where things kind of you know caught up to her and she flattened out maybe in the last 70 to 100 yards of the race but she really had a rough time of it out there He's got to give her a better trip. Now, I mean, remember, last year as a two-year-old, you know, she was second in a, in a, in a nice juvenile Philly Terp, uh, Terp Stake at Del Mar. She was second in the Surfer Girl. She didn't run all that bad in the Breeders' Cup. She didn't run all that bad in the Jimmy Durante. Um, she needs a pace scenario. And I think she gets it here with Laura's Light and, uh, and Parkour, you know, probably setting things up. I think she's going to – Relish the extra eighth of a mile as long as she gets the right setup here. I think there's more talent than you may think. And look, can she outkick uh, Stella Star? I don't know, but Stella Star could be nine to five, and uh, Crow Evoke might be, you know, ten to one. So at that price, I think it's worth the shot. Uh, she's definitely going to be a key to my tickets here in this spot. We see this race very similarly in that. Um, I do think the speed horses are probably going to end up hooking up. I think it's going to set up well for Stella Star, and she was she was impressive. She just you know she she launched a, a really really late kick. And when horses get beat by horses up the rail, sometimes it's like they don't even see them. You know when they move through on the inside, she kept grinding it out after having to go so so wide. She's going to come running. I I have kind of a similar approach with a, a different horse as you. Um, I'm going to go with the two KP Dreaming, and this will kind of yeah. be my. Uh, my other horse to include in some of the exotics with uh, along with the nine. Now, as a two-year-old, she she had some ability. They they kept trying to get her in you know grade ones, and she was behind some of the best two-year-olds that were running. Bast, British Idiom, um, Donna Veloce. Uh, so she she kept some good company. She was just in a little bit too tough. So she comes back on March the twenty-second. She makes her first start of twenty twenty. Actually, she makes her second start of twenty twenty. It's her first start in two and a half months. And she goes long on the grass And 
I thought the race was actually okay She had a slow start She was basically last early One horse in the field got distance She is legitimately 15 lengths out of it At one point And she's chasing a lone speed winner In parkour And this was her first try on the turf It was her first start in a couple months She angles out at the top of the lane She closes a bunch She just ends up min- uh, finishing uh, missing second there When she finishes third I just feel like if there's somebody that's got some upside That's got some room to improve She's only got one start on the grass before this I think she can take a little bit of a step forward in here And if we don't get Stella Star Coming up with that late run that Stella Star has To me, if, we, if we're looking at this race as it's going to set up And we're not playing parkour And we're not playing Laura's Light Then the rest of the group, the Croc of Oaks They're kind of in a similar you know, you look at them similarly as far as how you feel what their you know their level of chances of winning the race is. The one KP Dreamy, the two KP Dreamy, they're kind of all in that next tier. So for me, I think she could get the setup. I don't know if she's good enough. She's going to have to improve, but I, I should get some value here. Should get a little upside. So uh, I guess similar ideas with just slightly different approaches on the the other horse that we're going to use because I'll probably be two nine, and it looks like you're going to be more like four nine. Yeah, yeah, I, I will be including the two in, in some tickets. I, I do agree with you in, in your points there. Um, and I, I, it's just a weird thing with me. Sometimes when I see uh, a trainer with similar horses in a spot like this as the two and the four, I don't use one without the other one because I hate to yeah. get beat by the other horses. Makes sense. Seen. Yeah, so uh, I agree with you. For me, four, nine, and I absolutely am including the two. Um, you know, and, and if I can find a way to get both the two and the four on the ticket, any combination of two, four, and nine would be fantastic. They'd be great in some of the uh, the exotics there. Or, you know, if you could get, if you could somehow beat the nine in one of the uh, beat the nine with one of them in the late pick fours or late pick fives. So we move to race number nine, a mile and an eighth on the turf, made in specials, three year olds and up. I mean, honestly, Darren, if you built a case for any horse in this field except for the nine, I I'd be fine with it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I wouldn't. It wouldn't. I, I would look at you and, and I'm sure you could sell me on, on them in, in many different ways This is going to be a race where I hope I'm I'm alive to many um, For me, a horse that I kind of start with Who I think is a little fun to play Is uh, Whirl Candy Who might be able to steal this race He's got legitimate sprint speed And now he's going to be stretching out I don't know how far he wants to go But there's plenty of distance Plenty of turf in the pedigree So Whirl Candy might be able to steal this thing on the front end He's kind of a fun speed horse I think who they'll all have to be running at But for me, like after him You you can mention a bunch in here Premier League's kind of got a, a fun pedigree I think he exits a really strong race He's got a big shot making his first start As a four-year-old What do you do with a couple of the new faces Like the six and the eight They're both new faces You have you know Cosmo who was just a runner-up At this level last time out Just many fun angles For, for horses in this race and I've got another one for you. Um, the five in here, Premier League. Um, never picked up his feet first time out. Uh, put away for the winter. Look at the race that he comes out of. Loaded. So, yeah, never easy came out of it. Ran a couple of stakes, was an allowance winner. Mo Forza became a grade one winner on turf. and, and Or grade, maybe a grade two. I'm not sure if he, if he won grade one. But he actually ran the Pegasus Turf, the Pegasus World Cup Turf race against Zulu Alpha earlier this year. Um, he's a real horse. So he's coming out of a monstrous maiden race. 
And he was only he was ni- I'm looking at his, his right now. He was nine yeah. to two in that race, Mo Forza. Yeah. In that Pegasus World Cup turf. And he did win the grade one Hollywood Derby earlier in the year. And now, you know, he won he won four races in a row after when he he broke his maiden and then three more in a row following that. Yep. And then oh that's right, he won the Hollywood Derby, correct. Um I mean they paid two hundred thousand for this horse. Kaleem Shah did. I love Animal Kingdoms. I think he's a, a very versatile and talented stallion. Where in the world did that workout come from on May the 23rd? Right. 46 yeah. and four. So, and, and by the way, not only that, but if you take a look at the damn side of the pedigree, uh, this horse is a half to a horse by the name of Paved. Paved was not a world beater, but was a grade two winner on turf. He won the grade two, or I should say she won the grade two honeymoon stakes uh, over at Santa Anita back in 2018. Finished second beaten ahead uh, to Basilica in the Rodeo Drive. Ran in the Breeders' Cup. Ran the American Oaks. Um, so there's a lot of interesting angles here uh, for this horse to really step up his game uh, second time out. So Dan was a multiple turf winner too. Um, just, just like a lot of sneaky things too. Nothing that like punch it, like smacks you in the face. There was another Shiwasi who was another multiple winning turf sib. Um, uh, Tarkia was another one who won a few times going uh, on the grass. So just, and then as you said, like top and bottom just feels grass. Like you, you feel like this horse is definitely, we don't know how good, but definitely a lot, lot better than that debut. And I think they kind of, May have accidentally tipped their hand with that work the other day. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I and also keep in mind they gelded the the horse after that race. Maybe he had to grow into himself a mm-hmm. bit. Maybe a couple of issues, but I love the workout pattern. You know, not missing works. Just every week, boom, boom. They're all nice workouts. You know, and, and capped off with a with a serious forty six and four drill uh, from the gate over at Los Al. So um, you know, you're going to get a price here. Uh, you know, don't be shocked if this horse runs a much better race in in a a very contentious uh, field, to say the least. But uh, yeah, for me, uh, I'm gonna be I'm basically gonna be playing the old key box that not a lot of people play, where I'm gonna key off this horse up and down and exactors and tries and and hope he hits the ticket. Yeah, uh, and you know, just another small thing too, like you see Breeze Plonk. He was what when I was like just starting to get into playing the races a lot myself. He was one of those like blind jockeys going long on the grass that I would like to play, you know, because he just always kind of seemed to give you a good trip. He worked out a nice trip, very patient, someone who rides the grass very, very well. You never, he's never going to get bet down hard. I don't feel like he's going to, I just don't, even when he's not hitting at a high percentage, I don't feel like I'm going to get a bad trip or he's going to lose a race for me aboard. So just lots of little things I think to like about Premier League. I'm with you. He's going to be in all of my exotics in what is a really, really like fun race. Um, I mean, we see a horse like the seven or the eight Rio Ocho for Mullins coming in. That one will probably be tough. Even the eleven, Darren. I mean, Canadian Luck, too stretching, uh, stretching out. Might have needed that race. Now you're going to try the grass. There's a little bit of grass in there. The races that he exits aren't bad. This is, this is just a good way to end the card. Um, and and with a horse like Premier League in in a race where a ton of horses are going to take all sorts of different money. So even if he ends up being like eight to one. In half, you're still going to be getting a great price. Oh, yeah, no question about it. I mean, for me, um, you know, he's a win. He's a win play at, at seven, eight to one or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, every bit of that. 
Uh, in terms of exactus and tries, I'll, I'll be using him. I will use World Candy, who I expect will be loose on the lead, and, and will. I don't know how long the horse wants to go, but you know, speed on the turf at Santa Anita, especially if you're out there by three lengths, is always dangerous. Uh, the six Talion is a horse that you know. I look. I don't know much about. Um, it's hard to get a read on the races that he's coming out of, but you know, goes to Matthew Chu here, who's who's won with a horse like this in the past. Has been off for over a year, but you know, obviously has turf pedigree and might step up. But mainly for me, it's going to be the five with the two, six, seven, eight, uh, and I'll probably add on to you know some other spots for third as well. Um, and, but really, get Premier League home. Yeah, I might even be single to this horse in the pick four if I have to spread early and just try to hope to catch a catch a real flyer at a price. That'd be a fun way to end things. Uh... Darren, this was a blast again. Appreciate you hanging out and talking Churchill. You hanging out talking some Santa Anita. We talked uh, King of the Ring 1993 a little earlier, and uh, we're going to have some more uh, wrestling talk next week when we talk some Survivor Series 1992. So thanks again, buddy. Let the folks out there know where can we follow you. I know you're always uh, one that loves tweeting during the big races when, when they're going off and loves interacting with the folks out there back and forth. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm over there on Twitter at, at the track 7 um, I'll be definitely in this weekend betting the Churchill card Saturday and be all in on Premier League. So I'll be watching closely and we even have some harness racing coming back. And there's a chance that the Meadowlands might be racing next week. They're qualifying on Saturday. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. So things are starting to pick up, Gino. We're starting to get some things in our life back. And, uh, you know, that, that means good things for us. Positive for everyone as it's moving in the right direction. Uh, thanks again, Darren. Folks, don't you go anywhere. We'll take a quick break, but we're going to be right back on That's What G Said. Big thank you to Darren Zocali for helping us out talking a little Churchill and a little Santa Anita. And we're going to hear a little more from Darren in a bit when we talk a little uh, wrestling and go back in time to 1993. Didn't get a ton of responses when I uh, asked on social media for some of your best bets, but hey, that just means there's only going to be a few of you who have the opportunity to come on and co-host a segment with me. So if you ever see me asking for um, selections for the NBA Jam Rules, what we call it, segment, if you give us a winner on three consecutive shows or three consecutive times in a row, you will win the opportunity to come on and co-host a segment with me on the show about whatever you want. We can talk any sports you want, a TV show or anything at all. We can go through your history, your past, whatever you want to discuss. So make sure you Think it over, get a good selection out there. We're always going to read them on the show for you, so you can uh, you can tell everyone, hey, look, I, I had the winner right there, and they uh, they gave me a shout out on that show. So on Twitter, Michael Harley, good to hear from Michael. His best bet: Churchill on Saturday, May the thirtieth, race six from the ten hole. Said the horse, I'm assuming that's named after the DJ Tiesto. Michael Harley, good luck, Michael, with your play for Saturday. We also have a Saturday play from. Joe Killian operatic in the second at Churchill. There appears to be a speed duel that she could close into. Good luck, Joe. Nice to hear from you. And we go from Joe Killian to Joe Grissom. Said had some luck on Terry Wallace's old long shot handicappers hour on the radio in Hot Springs years ago. Always make for more fun than sending in a succession of six to five morning line horses. In that vein, I'm going to go with Churchill Downs, race two on Saturday. The number one, Color in Colonel, 15-1 morning line and uh, spotted very well. 
Santana had some success with him in protected races at Churchill Downs and Keeneland last year. Now drops into the claiming ranks. That's Joe Grissom who gave uh, his analysis. Joe's in the Live and Breathe Horse Racing Group. Big shout out to Gabe who does a good job running that group on Facebook. Uh, love uh, posting the podcast in there and interacting with all the folks in the Live and Breathe Horse Racing Group. So nice to hear from Joe. Nice to hear from Joe Grissom. Nice to hear from Joe Killen and Michael Harley giving out their best bets for Saturday. Good luck, fellas. And if you win, it's going to be one down with two to go. So on this week's episode of Billion, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about everything that happened in Season 5, Episode 4 of Billions, which is called Opportunity Zone. And remember, if you're someone who likes to read some of these recaps, a really good one that I look to a lot of times and kind of sparks some interest for me is the one on uh, The Ringer by Miles Surrey. So some things to discuss about this episode. It's called Opportunity Zone, and it's a lot about acts Going back to Yonkers, where he's from. Axe is bonkers for Yonkers? Yeah, he's from Yonkers. So, what ends up happening is he is going back home because Yonkers is a an area that has what they're calling opportunity zones. It is a place where they're giving tax breaks to enable and encourage economic growth in the community. So they're trying to bring in a lot of new things and just really an influx of money to the community. And this kind of hits home with Axe personally because he is from Yonkers. So this is kind of one of the things that we see his rival Mike talk about doing good and making money. And we we kind of see Axe getting the opportunity to do that here because this is actually a project that he seems to really believe in. So, Mike, like always, he's on the uh, opposing side, Mike Prince, he's on the opposing side of Axe, and he's trying to to get that Yonkers opportunity zone. He wants to be the one to fund the project, he wants to be the person in charge of it. Unfortunately, he's not going to be able to go to war with Axe over something like Yonkers where Axe is from, he's just got that little more hometown in him. One thing we love about Billions is the fun cameos, and we get a cool one with uh, Dominique Wilkins. He's playing a little one-on-one with Mike Prince, and uh, it's just real quick and real brief, but we get a, a good look at Dominique. The artist that Axe has hired to work on commission for him, and Axe gave him that really nice, new, fancy, schmancy... A place to live in with the great lighting. Nico Tanner. He's got a little bit of of block. He has not been able to to paint. And so Axe, of course, noting that he hasn't done any work, sends in who? If someone's struggling, they gotta go to Wendy. So Wendy comes in and talks to Nico. And she just tries to inspire him like she does... With uh, with Axe and the folks at uh, at Axe Capital, and after one conversation, she's able to kind of figure out his issues. He's he thinks he's become, you know, a heartless, no money sellout type, and she's able to show him that that's not the case. There's a little something there between them too. You almost, and this is what Miles uh, Surrey predicts in his recap on Bill in the recap on Billions. You almost can feel like there might be something 
moving forward from them later in the season where they end up having some sort of a an affair and it and maybe it makes Axe jealous because we're we're getting this tease with Wendy and Axe now all the time now that Chuck's out of the picture. Maybe a little foreshadowing there with the two of them. And we get two wags. Poor Wags. He's trying to uh, relate with his son, George. Remember, George is now um, a born-again preacher, very, very uh, religious, and trying to convert and save his father, Wags. He actually says, I'm here to save you, your soul. Let me baptize you. We don't get to see the actual baptism, we just see Wags go off with his son to what looks like a, a church that Wags does not like the look of it from the outside. And then the next time we see Wags back on the screen, he's talking about how he had, he lost one of his kids to the pole and he lost another one to Jesus. He said he's not going to try to figure anything out with his old kids. He wants to make a new one. He said, I'm not young, but she will be, of his wife-to-be. And then we start to see Wags, like, looking through profiles. I hope we're going to get to see a, a ton of this as Wags, like, going through the dating world, looking for a viable uh, mother to a future child of his. Muthi, who went with Taylor to Taylor uh, Mason, capital, is back with his friends. And Miffy is very happy because he loved hanging out um, in the office with this group. They loved to to shoot the shit, to make fun of each other, to give each other a hard time. And so now that Taylor Mason Capital and Axe Capital are, are sharing the place together, we see Miffy kind of out there hanging around with the with everyone again. And it, it looks like Taylor's mad at first, and they are seeming like they're a little bothered by it. But I think it's one of those things that Taylor realizes. Mafi's much happier out there. Probably going to be better for um, the work relationship between the two companies. And maybe McPhee is someone that Taylor will be able to use to get information from if Mafi's out there amongst uh, and, and maybe hearing some things that Taylor might not be. So over at Yale Law, Chuck is teaching, and we meet a new character played by Juliana Margulies. This is Catherine Bryant. She is a professor and a published author, and she talks all about sex. Her book is called The O-Gap. And she is drawn to Chuck and likes Chuck because of the famous lecture when he outed himself and, and talked about his inner demons. And so she wants Chuck to come to her class to talk with her students and do a little Q&A. Chuck doesn't really seem to at first, but you could tell he's into... He's into her a little. He's into uh, Catherine. And now that Chuck is kind of on the market, no Wendy. This looks like it could be a possible future love interest for, uh, or maybe in a, maybe at the very least, a sex interest for Chuck. Some of the questions that the kids are asking him if he felt any sexual gratification from the public humiliation, he said the release was more emotional than carnal. So Axe ends up putting on a great show and selling himself as the man in this Yonkers Opportunity Zone. But what he's doing that's key is he's aligning himself with Franklin Sacker. Yes, the father of Kate Sacker, who works for Chuck. And he's using 
Franklin's community roots He's using the fact that Franklin is a black man To help him kind of spearhead this project And he's like the face of the project for Axe This obviously puts Kate in a weird spot Because Chuck and Kate are You know Inevitably trying to take Axe down Which is going to have to have her pull her father down A little bit too and he's going to get caught in the mud So continuing to move forward On Billions um, There we see that Wags now has a game plan He's going to try to find a a date A wife to to help Give him a new kid Um, We see Taylor kind of playing some games In their head about what's best For the morale of the the two companies Together and maybe how to better manipulate Axe We see Chuck and introduced to a new Friend, co-worker, possible love interest Maybe the same for Wendy too With the painter Nico What's going on with Wendy and Axe We don't really know And now uh, Sacker and her dad Kate Sacker and Franklin Are going to be probably at odds here So pieces being moved around On the board That is Billions We're going to take a quick break Hear from one of our sponsors When we return it's going to be King of the Ring 1993 Recap and review With Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali We go match by match Kick back and enjoy Coming up after this quick break Just wanted to remind you about one of the sponsors Of That's What G Said podcast Sarah Candle Company Visit sarahcandles.com C-E-R-A candles.com Use the promo code G-I-N-O For 10% off of your entire purchase These are all natural soy wax candle They Candles, they burn longer They are better for you than the candles out there That have that traditional paraffin wax Uh, I know the people from this company personally I've grown up with them my whole life They love candles And the goal was to, to have an affordable candle That everyone can Enjoy Use that promo code G-I-N-O My favorite is Fresh Roses The Fresh Roses scent is awesome If you're a horse racing fan They got Del Mar in there You ever want to know what Del Mar smells like But you couldn't make it out there Order your candle right now From Sarah Candle Company The website C-E-R-A Candles.com Sarah Candles.com Promo code G-I-N-O For 10% off your purchase our regular weekly meeting uh, with uh, Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne, where we go back in time and talk about some old wrestling. We are good friends. We are wrestling fans, and we love going back and rewatching some of our favorite old wrestling shows and uh, discussing the fun commentary, the excellent matches, maybe some matches that were worse than we thought, or maybe some that were kind of hidden gems. This was my selection, and we're going to go for the first time outside of one of the major. WWF pay-per-views and, and that's with King of the Ring 1993 Welcome in Darren and Andrew Fellas, how we doing? Living the dream, my man It's uh, We've gotten into the warm weather Finally in New York I played a round of golf this morning Shot an 89, feeling good about myself Nice uh, I, think, I think it was really kind of just uh, A little bit of uh, momentum Coming off of watching this pay-per-view last night Uh my wife loved, my wife had actually never seen this one uh, because she really was kind of a, a bit more of a casual fan back then when she was 9, 10. And once Macho Man wasn't wrestling much anymore, she kind of fell out of love with it. But uh, she got a kick out of it, especially uh, when Hulkamania got squashed. Okay, we're actually sort of inverse here because for us, 
the heat finally broke in Northern California today to some extent. It was up over 100 earlier this week. It was a slightly more tolerable popular number, Darren, 89 degrees today. And my question for you, Darren, is you shot 89. When did you pick up after how many holes? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. Very funny. You know what's funny? I actually hit the longest drive of my life on a par 5, 540 yards. I hit a cart path. And the ball rolled down the hill on the cart path the entire way. It was a 540-yard par 5. The thing went 356 yards. Granted, it rolled a good 120. So it's the tin cup. That's what we're yeah. talking here. It's in the way yeah. he makes the bet in tin cup. I, got David, I, David, I pulled David Sims right out of the back pocket. I went right down the road all the way to Armadillo. (laughs) That's awesome. And it was one of those shots that you get extra points for in the old Hot Shots golf video games. Love those. He's gonna he's hitting that ball in the damn damn road. When they when they say that's great. Yeah. So uh good good to uh, be talking with both of you again. And man, you know, I this was a show that I always liked a lot as a Bret Hart fan. So we're at King of the Ring 1993. We're in June of 1993. And This is a very strange time for the WWF in that Hulk Hogan is back, sort of. He was gone for the entire second half of 92. He came back for his one match uh, at WrestleMania. We thought he ends up getting involved in the title match. He basically steals the title, you know, after Yokozuna cheats to win it. And we end up leaving WrestleMania 9. With Hulk Hogan as the WWF champion When he wasn't even in the WWF championship match So um, Going into this pay-per-view This was the This was a big year for WWF too This uh, Monday Night Raw has just started In January And now we're expanding to a fifth pay-per-view In in June of 1993 With the King of the Ring And a lot of the rumors were That this was a pay-per-view That was basically around for Maybe two reasons One of them To Give Brett a title that wasn't the title to kind of give him something as kind of a keep him happy. And also, this was a place where Hogan was going to lose the title. Um, we didn't really know Hogan would be gone forever at this point, quote unquote, for nine more years, forever at that time. But this was where Hogan wanted to lose the belt. And Darren, I know we'll get into it. Not what the actual plan was, uh, which was supposed to be a Bret Hart versus Hulk Hogan match at SummerSlam for the title where Bret would beat Hulk Hogan in the sharpshooter and Hulk Hogan would pass the torch to him like he did to Warrior a few years earlier and kind of make Bret the man. And uh, we we sure as shit see after this pay-per-view. That does not happen. Yeah, and, and it's really unfortunate. Um, look, it's unfortunate for, from the standpoint that it would have been a really cool moment for wrestling fans to have a Brett Hogan match at this point. Um, you know, the idea that Hogan had no problem putting Warrior over a far less accomplished wrestler in terms of in-ring ability compared to Bret Hart and what he was capable of in the ring uh, and where his career obviously was going to end up going. You know, it, it really is a shame. Um there were so many things if Brett would have been given the title in August of 93. You could have had Perfect win this thing, you know, maybe turn heel and done a Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect program for the title, you know, later on in 93. Um, you know, obviously Perfect ended up getting hurt, but that could have still been a nice plan. Um, 
you know, there were there, there were a couple things that could have been done. Putting Yokozuna over was not one of the top five things that they could have done at this point. And, and it's really part of the reason why I hold a lot of animosity towards Hogan in that he basically single-handedly decided he's not going to do business for Brett. And in an interview, many, many years later, somebody challenged him and said that he wouldn't put Brett over. And his response was, it's not his time. It wasn't his time, brother. Oh, okay. Well, it wasn't your time either. You were an old man at this point on the way out the door. So what the hell difference did it make? But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm jaded by it. Uh, I'm glad Brett gets his moment throughout this, you know, throughout him. And it's ironic that, you know, the guy whose time it wasn't yet has to wrestle three times, uh, you know, and Hogan in goes the main out there. Event, in yeah. the intro of the show, they don't even talk about Hogan's match. It's all about the King of the Ring, you know, but the, the guy's not there yet, and they've literally built the show for him. Um, Andrew, where do you stand with uh, with kind of just 93 overall for WWF? I'm just looking forward to hearing Darren talk about the Yokozuna Hulk Hogan popcorn <laughs> here. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to Darren renouncing his American citizenship as Yokozuna destroys the American hero Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Having said that, you guys hit the nail on the head. There was a lot of weird things going on. We're going to dive into this. There were some things that I really liked about this show. There were some things about this show that were just plain bonkers. Okay, let's uh, let's jump right in. So we're in June of uh, 1993, and we have a King of the Ring eight-person tournament that this pay-per-view is basically you know centered around. We'll have an Intercontinental Championship match. We'll have Hulk Hogan versus Yokozuna in what ends up being the final time we see Hulk Hogan on WWF TV until 2002, which is kind of ironic. They say at one later in the show, actually, Jr. says at one point. Hulkamania is not, this won't be the last you hear of Hulkamania, which is, is weird because he's right and he's wrong, right? <laughs> you know, he, we didn't hear the last, but I don't think JR thought it would be uh, maybe nine more years till Hulk was back in the, in, in the WWF landscape. So D- Darren kind of set up a lot of what happened and what, what was supposed to happen. And what's so weird about this show right before we, we even jump into it is that you've got Lex Luger, if, if you, if you, if you didn't, Watch TV and anything in between This show and SummerSlam And you saw this version of Lex Luger And then you turned on for SummerSlam And you saw Lex Luger in the main event Against Yokozuna As the red, white, and blue major babyface Literally You know, two months later And he is the babyface when he slams him on the 4th of July Which is just like four weeks after this So really crazy how things happen um, After this show Vince introduces the first ever King of the Ring extravaganza This made me laugh how many times they mention this Throughout the show, the first ever King of the Ring Where you literally have Macho Man saying The first ever King of the Ring And he's a former king <laughs> He's a former king um, Which is great, but this was really the first Like pay-per-view, they would have it on house shows And stuff, everyone besides Brett had to qualify for this tournament They had to win matches on Raw Or um, you know other shows Leading up to this and we have Jim Ross, Bobby the Brain, and Macho Man on commentary. This was the same group that was at WrestleMania 9. I will say, Macho's not nearly as bad as he was at WrestleMania 9. He's, he still says a lot of really Captain Obvious things, uh, but he's not saying a bunch of like illogical th- things, at least, uh, in here. 
And um, they're they're not a bad team. Like they have they have their waves. They find to find their footing in, in certain spots of the show. And then right away, it's ruthless Razor Ramon, as Vince McMahon calls him in the intro. And it's Brett versus Razor Ramon in the first match of the first round of the King of the Ring, which is really crazy because uh, Darren, this was their your WWF Championship match just a few months earlier at the Royal Rumble. They were battling over the title, and they're opening this show first round match. Razor recently lost to the one two three kid. Crowds chanting one two three. Um, Razor had to beat Tito to qualify, and Brett was given a free entry into this because of the uh, shenanigans when he lost the title at Mania. So hey, sorry, you got screwed. We're not going to give you a main of, uh, a rematch. In fact, you're not even going to get a rematch in any way, shape, or form till you win the Royal Rumble in '94 and then get one at, at WrestleMania. But you can you get to to get free into the entry into the King of the Ring. Yeah, I mean. There was a lot of stuff going on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> needless to say, um, I, I mean this uh, this first match I thought was a damn good match, and I'm yeah. and I'm not surprised because I, I thought I really enjoyed their Royal Rumble match. I thought that these two worked really well together. I thought uh, in their feud leading up to the Royal Rumble, uh, I thought there was a lot of good stuff between the two characters. I thought the promos were good leading in. I thought Razor, aka Scott Hall, really did a good job. And, you know, again, it speaks to, you know, Bret Hart's ability. Scott Hall is not the greatest ring worker in the world. He's good. Yeah. Um, Bret makes him look real good. He makes all three guys, obviously, look real good, although perfect, of course, is good by himself. But, uh, yeah, there's a couple of really cool spots in this match. Um, there's a couple of near falls that are really good. Like, I mean, there's a small package roll-off at one point where Razor kicks off at, like, 2 and 15 sixteenths. I mean, it's... The timing of it is sensational. It actually has the crowd kind of on the edge of their seats, jumping up, grabbing their head. Um, you know, Razor gets a lot of his typical moves in. Brett gets a run of his moves in as well. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth here. You know, I like the fact that the finish is not anything too predictable. It's not a sharpshooter. It's, it's that, you know, kind of reversal or uh, that counter off the, the side suplex off the inside turnbuckle that Razor used to do. Um, yeah, I thought start to finish, good match. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I one of the questions that I had about this tournament was some of the, you know, some of the matchups and yeah. getting, getting Razor out early. Um, you know, I thought Brent Perfect probably should have been the final. Yes. Um, you can I see do. why they set it up, why the way they did, you know, with a yeah. big man and he gets the buy and stuff. But if if Brett would have been able to kind of flip it around maybe and get like a like Bam Bam first and then Bam right. Bam kind of DQ it, you know, and beats him up after and Brett's struggling and then Razor and then Perfect, that probably would have been even a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, I get why they did. And I'm sure maybe they wanted, you know, the baby face going over the big heel at the end. Okay. Um, but, you know, so I did have some questions about that. But that, that that's not any of the wrestlers' fault. I, I, I genuinely thought this was a really good match. And, um, you know, I thought it played well off their Royal Rumble, and it set Brett up for uh, a tremendous pay-per-view for him. This was a pretty good night for Bobby the Brain Heenan, with one exception that we'll get to. And he has one <laughs> of his best lines right off the bat. Brett does the thing where he gives the sunglasses to a kid and Heenan is incensed and goes, he tries to buy friendship. <laughs> First thing I saw on the show and I was rolling. So, okay, we're off to a good start there. Darren, this is lost to history because we don't really understand this until we see it. 
But do you know what Razor Ramon slash Scott Hall was? In terms of, you mean right now in this match? He was a big guy who could move. <laughs> he's, yeah, because he's bigger. He's deceivingly big. You don't he, understand it because he's not a giant, but he's a legitimate 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, yep. and he's light on his feet. You don't understand it because he's working with these smaller guys all the time, and he does a great job of working down to their size, mm-hmm. which is a strange compliment, but you know it when you see it. He's a spot in this match where Brett tries to do a hip toss and Razor uncoils this great clothesline that looked a lot like Jake Roberts' short arm clothesline that he used to do. And that was a really cool spot because you saw he's got Brett in height by a good five or six inches, and he's probably got him by a good 20 or 30 pounds in weight, too. That was a really cool spot. Brett bumps really hard for some of Razor's offense. That was really cool. I actually wasn't crazy about the way they booked some of the finishes in this tournament. No, and we'll, yeah. get, we'll get to my cheap, my chief gripe about that. When we get to the final, this one, it was good for a suspense thing, but I just don't understand why they felt the need to protect razor in this spot. When it's obvious, the point of the tournament was to get Brett over, especially when you're holding the loss to one, two, three kid over razors head as they certainly were. What's the problem with giving Brett a fairly dominant win there? Good match, decent ending, wasn't in love with it. See, I would have loved if the ending, because Brett counters and he sort of just kind of falls on top of Razor. It doesn't look great. It it kind of just looks like what would happen if you guys were in a fight, like in real life, you know, if they weren't like selling for each other. But Darren mentions the spot that is about a minute before that. That really awesome near fall where yeah. it lo- it almost looked like they hit three. Like that would have even been a little bit better. It was more of a small package. He kind of got him. He countered, and it was really good. Like that would have been the better spot to end it just a minute earlier. Um, unfortunately, they had this ending planned out. They probably had it better thought out in their heads. And um, a really really solid match that goes over ten minutes. Um, a couple other things to mention uh, at the beginning. Jay, a huge pop for Brett. Uh, Bobby and Jay are mentioning his accolades And they mentioned that there's 15 minute time limit In these opening rounds Lots of talk as Andrew mentioned about how Razor's been kind of rattled to the loss to the 1-2-3 kid They're slow early feeling each other out um, And then Brain says Brett's been putting on hold since he was born His whole family is wrestling But I can't stand him <laughs> Just <laughs> boom, right off the bat So you know we're going to get Brain going anti-Brett All throughout the night um, JR says that Brett is the number one seed in this tournament. And um, Brain says if he was in this tournament, he would have nailed the other guy during the instructions. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity, or otherwise, you're going to end up living here in Dayton, Ohio. And that's fun. <laughs> and then uh, he, he asks for a prediction. I loved this. He asks Macho Man and, and Andrew, and, and uh, Andrew, he asks Macho Man and, J, and uh, JR for a prediction. And it's, it would be like if Andrew and Darren, I brought you on here to talk about this show, and I asked you a question about the show, and you were like, hmm, I don't know. I was not expecting you to ask me a question about 93 King of the Ring. It's like they, they both seemed like this was the first time anybody in their life had ever asked them to predict something, and they were like steering clear of this. It was, it was really funny. Uh, and Macho ends up saying it's going to be either Brett or Perfect, and uh, he picks perfect his 92 survivor series partner and uh, jr says i don't know and brain says of course you don't you're from oklahoma and then um 
this is where I think you, the line you were talking about, maybe Andrew, that Brain says that was just a total miss. Um, Brain, um, Macho, um, is it gets really, really funny after this one too. So, Brett, there's a running power slam that Razor hits. He, he's hitting his awesome fall away slam, and then he hits the, the the running power slam. And Bobby the Brain says, Bret Hart is the kind of guy, when they call his hotel room for a wake-up call at 123, he probably thinks 123 and kicks out of bed. And it was just crickets. It's like, I guess, sorry, Bobby, they can't all be winners there. You know, uh, JR was just like, huh? And Macho says, this is useless information. (laughs) And, uh, um... Brett gives us his all of his repertoire. I mean, we get atomic drop, clothesline, side rush, and leg sweep, backbreaker, elbow off the middle rope. He gets the bulldog. Um, he goes for the bulldog, but Razor pushes him chest first into the turnbuckle, like only the hearts do. Like Owen and Brett do so well. Razor calls for the Razor's edge. Brett slips out of it, and this was really cool. Their arms are locked back to back, and Brett tries to power out of it, but it's like. Oh, I realize I'm not going to be stronger than Razor So let me use my leverage He goes and he kicks himself off of the top turnbuckle And like rolls over Razor's um, back And that's when he got that really great near fall So um, yeah, that that would have been an awesome way to end it They go a little, like a minute longer And um, they kind of fall off the top rope When when Razor's going for a back suplex And Brett gets that weird pin on him Not not the greatest finish, but a, a damn good a uh, 10 minute match and we're going to see Three like if you like Brett Or if you like in ring work This show is not going to be bad to you in any way Because a- anytime Brett's out there t- Throughout the night he just looks good And all the matches are, are excellent With him in the mix so uh, We then move on from This Bret Hart match To Mr. Perfect Mr. Hughes We didn't really see a whole ton Of Mr. Hughes he came back and forth A couple different times but it was it was interesting because you could tell Darren they were very high on him immediately because he's injected into this feud with the Undertaker and he's actually carrying the Undertaker's urn around at uh, King of the Ring. Yeah, and he's a guy that actually has some interesting backstory because he came. I mean, he had he had a cup of coffee in the AWA, but he, but he came from WCW, and in WCW he actually had a very important role in a really significant match. And it was the uh, Luger-Wyndham match for the vacated WCW World Heavyweight Championship where he became like the bodyguard for Luger and Harley Race. And during that match, he was actually the guy that distracts Barry Wyndham, that Luger uh, hits a pile driver and gets the win. So he actually has a big part in a really significant moment in WCW history. And then he comes to WWE and he's there for like three months, wrestling guys like Perfect and The Undertaker, disappears again, goes to ECW, comes back to WWE, and and he ends up being like the, the first bodyguard guy for Triple H. Then he ends up, you know, obviously taking a backseat to China. And then he comes back. And, and he ends up being, like, an enforcer for Jericho. Yeah. Like, it's weird. The guy's had, like, some major roles in wrestling. Every time he shows up, it's in a big spot. It just doesn't sustain. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sustain. And, look, I mean, you know, obviously he is what he is in the ring. Credit to Henning, you know, a.k.a. Mr. Perfect, who 
is selling the hell out of out of the stuff that he's doing in the ring. I mean, you know, he's flying all over the bay place, bouncing off the turnbuckles 10, 12 feet, doing flips, hard hits. I mean, you know, and, and the match ends in, in a DQ, and it is what it is because, you know, Hughes can only do so much. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the backstory for Mr. Hughes is really kind of interesting. Uh, Perfect gets the win here and sets up, obviously, the dream match that everybody wants to see, the rematch from SummerSlam 91 between Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect. And we will talk about uh, the similarities, the stark differences, and how both matches uh, you know, are simply tremendous, despite uh, being really different in terms of a storyline and scripted much differently as well. Darren, as usual, incredibly well put. And as usual, I will counter with a really stupid question that has never been answered. Why did Mr. Hughes wrestle wearing sunglasses? <laughs> that would have been one of those things that Gorilla would have been all over, right? Like the tie. Gorilla oh, would have yeah. been like, this guy can't see. What's he doing in there? You know? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was jarring. He was uncoordinated. You couldn't do a whole heck of a lot with him. Now. The setup here is I got a text message from a buddy yesterday, and he was sort of a casual wrestling fan during this time, and this was completely unrelated to what we were doing. I don't think he knew that I was watching this show. I certainly didn't know he was watching this show until he texted me. This is exactly what he texted me. I'm reading this verbatim. There's some dude named Mr. Hughes who I've literally never heard of, but I don't understand his gimmick. He looks like he was going to church and got distracted. (laughs) I don't get Mr. Hughes. I don't understand why he had to be a thing. He could do nothing in the ring that was useful. He bounced around, had some short stints in the mid to late 90s with a bunch of different companies. This did nothing for me. And Bobby Heenan actually did something that fell flat here. I don't know what the wisdom was behind giving Bobby Heenan a telestrator, but that was the one thing that as an announcer, he could not do. And you could tell he was really uncomfortable doing it whenever he had to do it. That's one of those ideas that you think, oh, give Bobby Heenan a John Madden type tool and let him do stuff. That'll work. Great idea on paper. In practice, not so much. The less said about this match, the better. Perfect gets the win by disqualification, which, by the way, if this tournament is this important, why the heck is Mr. Hughes getting himself disqualified? Right in front What's of the What's going on here? He just hits them with the urn right in front of He doesn't the... even try to hide it. No, it seems. And it's no fault of Mr. Perfect, who is trying to make chicken salad out of chicken, you know what? But this was just bad all over the place. It was rotten. And the less said about it, the better. Yeah, um, it was what I, the only thing that one of the things I thought was weird about this was they they talk about how it took Mr. Perfect three tries against Doink to qualify. I kind of remember that, and it kept taking him a while to qualify, which seemed weird. That that you know, Perfect seems like one of the top names in this tournament, and you're going to have him like struggle to get by Doink repeatedly. Um, Mr. Hughes beat Kamala to qualify, and uh, Jr. at the beginning is uh, says. Mr. Perfect excels at too many sports to name, um, uh, which I thought was funny. Um, and then Brain uses the brain scan. He says Mr. Perfect hit a foul ball with his gum swat. It was, it was bad, as Andrew mentioned. Um, brain almost calls JR Monsoon on accident, but he kind of catches himself. He says, well, you, you look like him, but you're not him. <laughs> and then uh, 
Yeah, you get the power moves from Mr. Hughes early JR says he was one of the most penalized football players in Big 8 conference history um, Perfect hits a, a drop kick And my note, my next note here was Hughes is awful Just that point. He just doesn't move well in the <laughs> ring Like he, He's best served outside of the ring in the roles that he was Because you know, I don't think after this we don't see him wrestle a whole bunch And then the next few times he actually comes back to the WWEF He's more of like Darren said, the enforcer for Triple H, like a, a second in the corner of Jericho, and he—that—that's that, the better role for him because he looks big, he looks powerful, but he just—he does—he's not very athletic, and he can't really move all that well. Um, and let's see, uh, Bobby says he made perfect the star that he is, and Jr. just immediately says wrong. And Perfect's trying to bump his butt off all over the place. He, we get an insert promo here from Brett Who said he'd prefer if Mr. Perfect won He'd rather deal with the wrestling holds And, uh, and not a brawl And he likes He just likes Mr. Perfect a little bit more too <laughs> This was, was kind of weird uh, And uh, Perfect gets in control um, Hughes uses the urn Perf- uh, Perfect gets the win via DQ Right in front of the ref This was probably one of the lower spots on the On the show just because Hughes was involved Perfect did everything he could as both of you guys Mentioned we then go backstage and it's Mean Gene with Mr. Fuji and Yoko Zuna. Yoko looks massive. Um, and Mean Gene, he's gonna he is feisty tonight. We see in all of his every time he shows up, he's like really like kind of prodding and heckling the guys and kind of trying to start stuff all throughout the night. Uh, Fuji calls Hogan a cheater. And Yoko he says Yoko is bigger and wiser. And Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this like the first time Yoko actually spoke and didn't just say bonsai? Like he says, "You American Hogan going down," and we kind of hear him speak like a, a a sentence or two. I think up until then he hadn't really said more than just like "oh" and bonsai. Right. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think you're right. You uh, you never really. I think sometimes you would hear him shout something. That wasn't really identifiable in the background, but normally he just yelled bonsai at, at one point or another at the end of, of the interview. But you're right about Mean Gene; he, he is doing a lot of poking and prodding. <laughs> later on, later on, there's a promo between Brett and Perfect where he's like really egging them on, yes. and then into it, and he tries to like back them off. He's like, "Well, it's it is kind of interesting, but uh, yeah." And, and then coming up after this, we get to talk about the. Uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan doing the USA chant against the guy from Asbury Park, New Jersey. <laughs> but at least he did them at a wrestling show in the United States and not in Toronto. So it could have been worse. Speaking of worse, though, the Gene shtick he was doing, I didn't like it. Yeah, I yeah. like the Gene Okerlund insightful trying to get a response from people. Kind of funny. I didn't a little, like yeah. Gene Okerlund Right in the mix saying this guy said this thing This guy said this thing It just it didn't work for me And honestly I didn't like Yoko's thing here Talking about killing Hogan And killing America And da 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 The entire thing just seemed forced And it's going to serve as the basis For one of my big problems With Yokozuna That we'll talk a little bit more about When we get to the Hulk Hogan match But as Darren mentioned, up next is Bam Bam Bigelow against Hacksaw Jim Duggan in another match that didn't really do it for me, and I'll tell you why after you guys uh, expound a little bit on your opinions. 
Yeah, so this is Bam Bam versus uh, Hacksaw, and um, Bam Bam beat Typhoon to qualify. Hacksaw beat Papa Shungo, and Hacksaw's in his singlet. We get the big USA and ho chance early uh, on in the match, as we always get with Hacksaw. And uh, Macho picks Hacksaw to win this. Nah, Macho, you're wrong on that one. Uh, JR go th- goes through Hacksaw's wrestling and football credentials, and then Bobby says. Can it? Nobody cares what anybody did as an amateur. Cash, pal. Big money is what you gotta make. It's this big deal. I got a letter sweater. That almost sounds like it came directly from Vince. Especially when he throws the pal. Cash, pal. Big money is what you gotta make. Big deal. I got a letter sweater. Like I think they could hear totally hear Vince saying something like that. Um, and uh, you know what? Hacksaw was pretty quick early. The crowd was really hot for this match. The crowd was a small crowd, but they were pretty hot for most of the show. And this is when Macho says, this is the first king of the ring ever to be crowned. Not only is he saying that in a match with a former king of the ring in it, he himself is a former king of the ring. So they're they're really like uh, trying to push this, that this is the first king of the ring, which is just hilarious. Um, Some big right hands from Hacksaw. He gets uh, tossed into the corner and JR says he might have a broken rib in the turnbuckle. Bobby says he might just be choking on some apple pie. Um, Hacksaw keeps trying to slam Bam Bam, which just doesn't work. He keeps trying over and over um, the first few times. And uh, JR says Hacksaw will never quit. But then Bobby says he's known as a quitter in in Glens Falls, I heard. (laughs) They said he he heard wrong, and JR says, you hear a lot of things that you make up, which was uh, a good line from JR. Um, Hacksaw bites Bam Bam while in a bear hug, like right in front of the ref. That should have been a DQ right there. Um, he sets up for the three-point stance, but Bam Bam moves. I thought the finish looked pretty good. Um, it, he moved, and especially the way that they had it from the backwards camera angle, and you get Hacksaw who goes flying headfirst right into the turnbuckle, bounces off, and then um, Bam Bam gets that top rope headbutt for the win. You know what? This could have been worse. I've seen a lot worse Hacksaw matches. It seemed like he had a pretty good pace throughout this match for the most part. Like this, these two guys are never together going to, you know, get you a five-star classic, but this, this was fine for me. Yeah, I, you know, sure. It could be worse. I mean, it's, it's okay for Duggan. Um, you know, there was a couple of, I thought the two bear hug spots were terrible because they're, they're just bad, slow. Two, three seconds into the bear hug. It's almost like Duggan's hulking up in the bear hug, like this is doing nothing to me as he's pumping, you know, pumping his fists. Um, yeah, I, I thought the finish was good, uh, just because I thought, you know, Duggan kind of like went head first, uh, like like you know, diving forward directly into the buckle. Uh, I thought that spot looked pretty good. Uh, it was much better than when you know Bam Bam tried to do a, a snap mare on him and Duggan did like a half-ass kind of flip. Uh, and Bigelow like let go of his head before he even started to turn. So you know there was some cringeworthy moments. I thought the finish was was good for for the match. Um, the match doesn't do much for me. You mentioned you know Duggan beat Papa Shango uh, to qualify. Interestingly enough, Papa Shango actually fought in a dark match on the undercard against Owen Hart, and that match actually was for the USWA World Heavyweight Championship. And was actually being defended on a WWF show uh, because there was this talent exchange program between WWF and the USWA at the time. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people forget about that. Uh, Owen Hart is on the 
undercard of this show. He's on the undercard of SummerSlam against Barry Horowitz. And then, you know, months from then, he'll be squaring off against Brett at WrestleMania to kick off that. And in a WWE championship uh, program with Bret Hart. So talk about the difference from where Owen Hart is uh, at this point, from where he's going to be nine, ten months from now uh, being in a dark match. But, yeah, as far as this match, not really too much else to say about it. Okay, uh, I actually might be able to explain one of the quotes that Gino mentioned talking about the letter jackets and whatnot. That may have been an indirect shot at the Varsity Club, the stable in Jim Crockett promotions, especially because Rick Steiner, who was a member of the Varsity Club, was Mm -hmm. on the WWF roster at this point. That's a good point. They'd been disbanded for a couple of years, but then again, Vince may have just seen movies like Top Gun last week. So nobody's ever going to say Vince is up with the times. Now, I feel like we're going in a ski slope here because, Gino, you didn't really have an issue with this match. Darren didn't think the match was all that great. I thought the match stunk. You had mentioned the finish with Hacksaw going into the buckle and whatnot. Yeah, that was creative, but it wasn't really the finish. Bam Bam came off with the headbutt, and the headbutt barely hit Duggan. That was ugly. And Bigelow, I understand, you know, being out there for a little while, maybe a little bit winded, but there's something to be said for not doing things you can't do. And he might have been able to do that at some point, but for some reason, he he got no airtime on the flying headbutt, and it just looked absolutely awful. You mentioned the Glens Falls line. I'm very happy that you did, upstate New York native here. But there was another one where Jim Russ says they're cheering for Hacksaw. And Bobby Heenan, without missing a beat, says, don't know why. (laughs) Just little things like that that make us really appreciate how good Bobby Heenan was. Uh, But as far as this match goes, no buys for me. Move on. I think this was the last time we see Hacks on pay-per-view He was on t- a few TV matches uh, I think losing to Yoko before SummerSlam And then he goes to WCW From 94 to 2001 So this is pretty much it for Hacksaw Who was um, always uh, said to be a, a good buddy of Hogan's And the two of them are going to head to WCW And we don't say uh, either one of them Who have been I mean mainstays of the WWF pay-per-view era to begin you are not going to find many shows that didn't have those two guys on them, uh, in particular Hulk, but Hacksaw was one of those guys that was always in some sort of a tag match here or there, or maybe in someone's corner, or or getting on the show in some way, shape, or form. So, um, two big pieces gone now from the WWF for a bit. We get a backstage interview. Terry Taylor, the Red Rooster, is just so bad and awkward backstage doing these interviews. Is that They just didn't have anything for this guy to do. Um, he's there with the, the smoking guns and the Steiner brothers I actually forgot the smoking guns were here this early You know, you forget that how long of a run And a pretty decent run Billy Gunn ends up having Obviously he's, I think, in, in his best role as a tag team uh, wrestler As we see here with the smoking guns But this is just kind of pumping their um, match for later on It's a really basic interview not Nothing uh, a whole ton uh, about that one As we get into Tatanka versus Lex Luger Who... He said four weeks from now, Lex Luger is going to be slamming Yokozuna on the 4th of July. Both of these guys are undefeated. Um, Luger is still using the big mirror in the ring, too. I mean, he's still doing all of the heel stuff. And he's just like, it's such an amazing turn in just a a month from here when it doesn't look like that at all. We get no signs here whatsoever. 
Um, he's asked by the officials to put his elbow pad on Or he won't be allowed to wrestle And he's eliminated um, Luger beat Backlund to qualify Tatanka won by disqualification And he actually beat Giant Gonzalez When Giant Gonzalez choked him out This match is 15 minutes It ends up going to the, the time limit um, There, I have some mixed feelings about this match There are some really good Little spurts I think the last like five to six minutes The pace really started to pick up a little bit There just are Like I, I didn't remember Darren when I watched now Tatanka matches back In my head I always kind of thought of him as like a Real fast quick paced moving type wrestler But you watch him back And he's a lot of rest holds He is Yeah I totally agree He's got Luger he keeps going to that arm bar quite a bit uh, there's, there's one point where I, I feel like he's almost got it. In, he almost has it on for two minutes straight. In the it, it might be, yeah, yeah. And and you and I'm sitting there watching it, like going, all right. Then you know Luger, you know, puts him in uh, in a wrist lock, and Tatanka reverses the wrist lock. You know, one one of my gripes about Luger is that uh, he oversells everything. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like he's trying too hard. Like he gets punched, and you hear him shouting. Like oh oh, it's like it's like watching a like a Mortal Kombat video game when when you put a move on a guy, you know, and he yes. makes a noise or something like that. Like it, it it just seems to me like Luger over oversells everything. Um, and yeah, I mean the match has some cool you know little flurries in it. Um, another problem that I have with Luger is that he so blatantly is like talking through the match with Taka. Like if you watch closely, I mean you could see Luger just talking to him constantly. Yeah, like his, even when he's like in a pin and, and he's about to kick out, he's literally talking to Tatanka, telling him, you know, while being pinned, what's going to happen next. Um, yeah, I, and then the ending is weird because so they go the time limit, and then you got Luger, who's the heel. He's the guy getting on the mic asking for five more minutes. Well, it's, right? it seemed like that was like a babyface moment, but then right. he attacks him right afterwards. Right. It didn't make any sense at all. Made no sense. Made absolutely no sense because it would always be the babyface who would be up there, give me five more minutes and get in the crowd. And he's playing to the crowd. Yeah. He's like playing to the crowd. I'm like, are you with me, guys? But you're the bad guy. You know, and then, okay, and, and it looks like maybe it's going to happen. And then he just charges and slams, you know, his uh, steel plate elbow crappy move thing into the back of Tatanka's head, and that's the end of it. Um, It's weird at the end. I don't know what they were trying to do with that. Maybe they didn't care because they had designs on turning him face. Maybe they thought this is how they were going to start turning him face. I have no clue. Me neither. But, because if you're yeah, if, if, if there's no attack up. after and he's just trying to get the crowd into it, then at least yeah. we could say, okay, we saw him like starting to turn face too. You know, we saw like the, the like he was he wanted to get into the tournament this and that. But this was very heel all the way around, and it's bizarre that you know a month later he is now your like number one contender made in the USA, Lex Luger. Totally agree, and yeah, I, I, when when Andrew referenced some bonkers moments. Uh, this this was certainly certainly one of them, and I, the, I mean, look, we talked about it before, but it's worth saying again because we're not going to get too many Luger matches because he wasn't really around for too long. The stupid elbow thing and him not doing the torture rack and whatever, however, came up with this gimmick, man. You know, just not a fan of it. Don't understand why 
he couldn't be, you know, the total package Lex Luger and get his torture rack. But uh, I'll leave it at that, and uh, I'll let Andrew kind of dive into it and take it from there. There's a fun thing that I noticed right before this match started. With some people, and you can pick out a couple of current WWE workers, you can tell that the outcome is going to go in a certain direction based on their facial expressions as they walk to the ring. Certain sections of the internet wrestling community call it jobber face. Luger had it. He walked to the ring ridiculously disinterested. And you can take a look back at his entrance and just watch as he wants to be anywhere else but where he is. Now, with the gimmick what it was and him being undefeated and Tatanka being undefeated, they sort of booked themselves into a little corner and there needed to be some shenanigans going on so that they could continue to push both guys. I don't know if there was any end game with Tatanka other than mid-card babyface that doesn't lose to fire up the crowds and you know be who he was which was fine but obviously the end game with Luger was he's going to body slam Yokozuna and headline at SummerSlam and he's going to get the belt no wait he's not going to get the belt he's going to win by count out and we're going to act like he's won the belt thereby <laughs> torpedoing his entire run but we're getting ahead of ourselves here so uh, you guys were right there were spurts in this match that were really good and as a result the crowd was legitimately hot for a couple mm-hmm. of the spots. Yep. Tatanka did a comeback. People bought a false finish. There that were some really great. close near falls, actually. There were there were a couple yeah. really close misses that, that the crowd was into. Yeah, except here's the problem. Tatanka does his comeback, and there's still two minutes left. You don't <laughs> yeah. do the comeback when there's two minutes left. You do the frantic comeback the last two minutes of the match, you get the last near fall. Luger gets the shoulder up at 2.99999. Tatanka looks at the ref wondering what's going on. Then you ring the bell. Yep. And then it's Tatanka doing the five more minutes thing. Luger does something heelish, whatever. This was backwards in a lot of different ways. You're right. I, I agree with Darren. The stuff with Luger's elbow never really made sense to me. Heenan has his worst line of the show. He starts talking about how Bam Bam Bigelow's ancestor was Buffalo Bill Bigelow, who scalped Indians, and it's just so tasteless. Uh, that would another swing and a miss there for Heenan. A lot of rest holds in this match. Luger and Tatanka could each be carried, but they needed somebody to lead them. Neither one was the leading type at this point. So... Some some other cleaning up things that uh, I might have missed. Let's see. Uh, Macho Man again mentions early on how unbe- unbelievable it would be to be king of the ring. Well, you've been you've been king of the ring, <laughs> Macho Man. Um, and then they start talking about and they talk about this a lot throughout the show that the winner of the king of the ring should be the number one contender. And Macho Man says the king of the ring and the WWF title are of equal importance. Um, Bam Bam cuts in with his little insert promo. Because he's going to be facing the winner of this match. He's got that built-in feud already with Tatanka. Um, Bobby the Brain mentions Bam Bam's great-great-grandfather, Buffalo Bill Bigelow, who uh, used to scalp them all. And then Macho Man again says, useless information. And he's right. Yeah, that was a bad one. Another the, he, he Brain was trying hard tonight. He did have a few swings and misses, though. Um, but he was pretty, he was solid throughout. Like, pretty, pretty good Brain. 
Um, JR says that Tatanka is a lumby Indian. Brain says a dummy Indian. And uh, and then JR dropping some knowledge. He says Luger had a 3.8 GPA in college and he turned down a meeting from the Naval Academy. And uh, decent starting, um, decent elbow here. Jumping elbow from Luger, he gains the advantage, and then Brain uh, Andrew would always do the you, when there's Tatanka in the match, you know we're gonna get the hey how are ya hey how are ya and the Tatanka. But but as you mentioned, I thought the last five or six minutes picked up, but then it was just it should have been the last five or six minutes, and then the bell, and then it kind of slowed down a little bit right before the bell. Brain says though at the end. Um, Lex is ahead on points And that's when uh, Lex gets the mic And then he ends up nailing Tatanka from behind As uh, we had spoken about So yeah this was a weird one to me Because it's not one that I loved I didn't hate it, there were spots in here Um, I think you hit the nail on the head perfect When you said these guys probably both Need to be led by a little bit better of a dance partner though. Yeah and It's a case where You can see how good Luger is When he's properly motivated But that brings me back to my initial point. Go back and watch his entrance. He wants no part of any of this. Mm -hmm. Yep. He's got that. They they say they call it the boo-boo face. A lot of the wrestlers do when you know you're losing or you know you're losing a title. You kind of come out and you can like you you can't even hide it. You're you're like showing face. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, there there are workers in the WWE now that have this. Uh, there have been people accusing Sasha Banks of this. I don't mm-hmm. see it, but some people insist on it. So one other line that I thought was funny too, um, we, or a couple. Tatanka misses a crossbody. Of course, Bobby's going to come in with the uh, the air tonneau. Air tonneau crashed, and um, there's 90 seconds left, and they're starting the countdown. And Macho wonders if they know the time limit, and Brain says, "No way." And Macho says. I've never been in a situation like this in a 15 minute time limit. Um, WrestleMania 4, you won that tournament. The first round had a 15 minute time limit. How about the big event that you were in, which was like the first ever WWF pay per view that you can watch back on the network? He made it to the finals of that, and that whole thing was, t- was time limit. So there's just a couple of moments where Macho's like, it's like, dude, you were in this. You were a king of the ring. You were in a tournament with 15-minute time limits. He May just... I submit the counter to that? Yes. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> no, I have no rebuttal to to that one. Um, so that's uh, that's it for Lex versus Tatanka. And then we get to that fun um, backstage promo where it's Brett and it's Mr. Perfect with Mean Gene. And this is where Mean Gene is just stirring the pot, Andrew. He says, uh, Brett, didn't you say that you would rather, uh, you'd prefer to wrestle Mr. Perfect? You, you think he's an easier opponent? And I think you probably kind of hinted at that. And, and then Brett's like, no, no, like, no I just, I, I like, I'd rather wrestle him. I like him. And so Mr. Perfect's kind of getting a little peeved at that. Um, Brett also mentions his dad. And he said, yeah, they, Mean Gene mentions their dads. And Brett said, well, yeah, my dad beat your dad. And that gets Perfect even more riled up. And then uh, Perfect says he's a winner, and Brett says well, you weren't at SummerSlam. And uh, I always love the promos that are backstage when you can hear the wrestlers' music hit, and they finish the promo, and then they come right out and enter. I kind of like that. I know it's happened right then; like, you get the emotion. This this is a fun back and forth. This kind of had shades of the, in a different way, the Brett Piper 
at, at Mania 92, right? Yeah, and I got to tell you, the first half of this fell flat with me. It seemed like Gene and Brett were both scrambling and stumbling over whatever they were trying to say. That didn't work. One of the things that did work, though, was Kurt Hennig did one of his favorite tricks, and if you don't know where to look, you miss it. When he does these backstage shots, whether it's photos or video, whatever, there are times when you can see he's standing on his tiptoes to try to get an extra couple of inches. And it's freaking fantastic to see him try to do that and have to bounce down and then bounce up quickly because he needed to give his feet a rest. And it's pretty cool if you look at the early parts of that promo. But the promo picks up considerably when they start talking about their fathers. Yeah. Anybody that's ever been a part of my dad could beat up your dad arguments. <laughs> it's cool stuff. And then you talk about how your dad never beat my dad and da 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 <laughs> And at that point, it got good. And the SummerSlam line was great. You talk about SummerSlam, Perfect does the faux handshake and then bolts off. (laughs) That part was pretty good. It was a rough start, but they got where they needed to go. Yeah. The the one thing about Perfect here, like, he's such a good heel that, like, his heel persona even comes out when he's in the role as a babyface. I mean, he's, you know... In a match against Brett, he's not going to be the babyface. Um, but his character at this point is. He's trying to do a couple of things. If you notice in like the first match when he walked down to the ring, he was doing a couple of things, like a, like a fist pump to the crowd, like a let's go and stuff. You know, just things that you never saw Perfect do when he was a heel. And it's a little bit awkward to see him as a babyface because he's just so damn good going the other way. But... Yeah, I thought this promo referencing SummerSlam, you know, was phenomenal. I, I agreed with with the point earlier about about Gene, where it's kind of weird that he's egging these guys he's on, acting like a heel almost. Yeah, it's just that and then not mean Gene. Brett, yeah, Brett kind of like jumps in and gets like a little confrontational, and then Gene is like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, relax, Brett. Well, what, 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 you telling him to relax? You, you're just egging the guy on for the last two minutes, like." Yeah. You know, it doesn't really make much sense. But, yeah, I mean, when they start talking about, like, my dad could beat up your dad and stuff, that I thought that was – whoever came up with that, that was phenomenal stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you right now I remember watching this as a kid going, you know, putting my hands together like, oh, boy, you know, what are we going to see? Let's see if these two guys can pull it off again. And I think this match gets a little forgotten about because of how – you know, the, the 91 SummerSlam match is such a big moment for Brett and kind of like the launch of Brett's career and one of the final times we see Perfect for a while and Perfect holding the IC title, which people really always like associate Perfect with that IC title. Um, JR, as they walk out, he compares them to MJ versus Barkley in the ninth, in the NBA Finals, which is going on at 93 at this time. If you were just watching The Last Dance, you, you probably saw a little bit about that. Um, and then Brett's already starting to sell some of his injuries from the match with Razor. He's yeah. uh, he's kind of selling the shoulder a little bit, but he's got the left fingers already taped up. And I mean, right away, I, I love the matches that you could tell that Bobby or or in the heel announcers are excited for. And Jesse was like this with a couple matches too. He was like this with the perfect Mr. Uh, Blue Bl- uh, Blue Blazer match and a couple other ones where he would just say like, "This is going to be a sleeper match," and you could tell. 
Bobby knew these two guys were going to go at it and give them all, give it their all. Like Macho's pumped, JR's pumped. They definitely add a little bit to the match too because they're selling this match like it is one of the best matches, and these two guys are two of the best in the world. And man, they are flying around the ring early. Brett hits a couple of those snap side headlock takeovers that just are so tight and quick and perfect is selling them and like flying around. You could tell. Pretty quickly that perfect Was in better physical shape here From a speed perspective Than he was in the 91 match I think that that match was probably better from Overall from maybe just like an Emotion standpoint but I don't I don't rate this one all that far Below to be honest And um I mean I'll pick up some spots That you guys leave off because we'll Go back and forth on this for, for a bit But um, Darren, I know this was one that when we started talking about shows, we we were pumped for the Brett um, matches against Perfect, and uh, this this was damn good. Yeah, I mean a lot of really good wrestling holds, even from the beginning with that kind of headlock takedown. They did I, I, they did that spot again with the you know the the kick up uh, from from ninety one where you know a guy would go down, a guy would go over to do something, and Brett would you know kick off and jump up, and then you got you got some brief. Holds and things like that in the middle of the match But with Brent and Perfect it worked fine You know a beautiful Crucifix uh, early on in the match You know things started to get a little bit uh, A little bit nasty At times a little bit of hair pulling And stuff they recreated The spot where Brett would grab Perfect by the hair throw him across the ring And he would kind of you know Split split legs into the ring post Which you know was, was a spot From 91 that they redid um, it, it's a it's a different match from the standpoint that it doesn't have the same animosity as '91. Mm-hmm. I took this the, the story that they were telling as just two guys who really believed whoever won this match was going to be king of the ring. Yep, and and I think they sold that story well. Um, the blocking of the perfect plexes, the the suplex. You know, over the top and onto the floor was a was a vicious looking spot for a match back in 1993 between two guys like this. Uh, a figure four spot with Brett on perfect going after the legs. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of really great spots in the match, and 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 it's a it's a different style, different paced match that tells a different story from the 91 match, but it doesn't make it worse. Uh, I think it. I think it makes it every bit as good. Uh, Meltzer actually rates this one a quarter of a star higher. Uh-huh. He's got the SummerSlam match as a four, and this a, as a four and a quarter. So take that for what it's worth. Um, you know, you get the Brett run on moves, but it just looks so good. I mean, from the the inverted atomic drop into that side Russian leg sweep, it's just a cool series of moves. You know, and I know we see him all the time from Brett. You know, he's got those moves with. You know the back, the backbreaker, the leg drop, the the elbow from the inside, the side rush and leg sweep. But his run of moves, when he would get to that set of moves, was just a really cool run of moves. They were executed perfectly, and and obviously perfect sells everything. You know so damn well. Uh, I love the ending. I love the the small package rollover. You know, perfect's got him at two. It rolls back. Perfect doesn't kick out, and he's kind of you know caught off guard by it. I love how perfect comes back in and you get the handshake at the end, but it, I like, I like how perfect did it. It, it mm-hmm. was kind of, 
in your face, talking to you kind of thing. All right, here's my hand. Slap on the back like a hard slap. All yep. right, good job. I thought that was good. I, I really, I there was nothing about this match that I didn't like. Darren, I love that you talked about the technical aspect of it because it opens things up for me to talk about the psychological aspects of this match. And there were a lot of things about that that I loved. Early part of this match, Brett out wrestles perfect. And they tell that story the first five minutes. Perfect ever so slightly goes heelish. Yep. Because mm-hmm. he knows he has to. In order Picks to up the fuck. intensity. You can kind yes. of feel a little switch flipped. Yeah. And it winds up being less technical and more kicky, punchy, use every corner of my body to beat you down with. And it's different. And I love that. I love how it was a sense of him trying to get just a little bit ahead of bread and what he was doing. Um, he gets a chop in between some of the sleepers in the match. And I don't know whether the chop itself was stiff or it just sounded it, but it's echoed all over the building. Somewhere a young Pentagon Jr. saw that and went, hmm, it's that effect. (laughs) Because you, you saw Perfect wind up, he hits the chop, and I don't know if it was the chop or if there was misdirection that sometimes the hearts would do where one of them would hit themselves in the thigh in order to make the sound. But that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. There was another spot near the end where Perfect crotches himself on the ring post. It's tough to tell if that was planned or if it was a botch that Perfect passed off as working really well. Because Brett sort of launched him about three quarters of the ring. Perfect bounced. And when he bounced, he went into the ring post. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was planned. If it was, that's a super advanced level spot that they could obviously pull off. But if it wasn't, it got passed off brilliantly. There was a spot like that in the SummerSlam 91 match where they sort of go tumbling off the top rope and you're mm-hmm. not quite sure if it was a botch or not. This was sort of the same thing. I loved perfect grabbing Brett's hand to stop the sharpshooter. The announced team did a great job of noting the fact, hey, Brett's got a cast on his hand from the first match. A couple of bandages there could potentially come into play. And then what do you know? It does. And like Darren, I love the finish of this match. Maybe not necessarily some of the other matches on this show. Maybe not even the tournament final. But I loved this finish. I thought it told a great story where, yeah, they weren't separated by much. They were only separated by a second. But that's all it took. Really good match, a lot of fun, and I wish it was even a little bit longer because they could have gone another 10 minutes, and I think we'd have all been just as much entertained, maybe even more so. Yeah, um, we'll go through it again a little bit with a fine tooth comb and pick a few things out that uh, might have missed. So, yeah, that bump that Brett takes where he's on the apron and he's trying to get back into the ring and perfect, perfect comes and kind of uses the ropes to launch Brett and Brent jumps off and he kind of lands into a box of water bottles <laughs> that are over there together and he lands on the concrete then he starts selling the knee so he's got multiple injuries going um and as Brett's getting back into the ring JR says perfect wants to win in the ring and Bobby says he knows perfect he's going to take a win any way he can he actually mentions earlier that if perfect wins the king of the ring and apologizes to him he might consider managing him again so uh, the the brain perfect stuff was really good in this match too because obviously with with their past um, brain at one point he's he starts getting really into this match and he kind of starts freaking out. Uh, Jr. is freaking out and Jr. says, "Don't they get tired?" 
and uh, and then Brett Brett starts getting kind of a little uh, you know digging into his bag of tricks a little bit. So he's getting a little dirtier. He's kicking and sweeping Mister Perfect's legs. He locks in the the figure four, and then Brain Bobby asks Jr. to slap him in the face because he's been cheering for Perfect. Jr. says, "I'd be happy to." Um, uh, Perfect ends up getting to the ropes. And Brett really starts working on that left leg I mean this is just damn good stuff Perfect is tossing Brett by the hair Macho says these are two of the toughest men in the WWF And Bobby the Brain corrects him And he says you're wrong These are two of the toughest men in the world Bobby is in this match He is loving it Um, Perfect gets the sleeper And then Brett gets to the ropes His knee gives out There's just so many little things that work well And just make this match so good JR lets us know we're now past 15 minutes And then uh, Brett goes for the sharpshooter Perfect grabs him by the fingers Which was a great spot It's like this is my last stitch effort The last thing I can do is grab you by the fingers Because I know they're messed up And just kind of bend them back And Bobby takes credit Because he says Perfect's still using what he taught him Brett hits a suplex on Perfect Perfect grabs the ropes They both go over Just a great, great spot They make it back in the ring And then the, the cradle a, like Small package that Darren mentioned With a fun, fun finish This is There's better matches out there Brett has better matches A few of them This is personally a match I love This is this is the one That, that was the reason why I like this show And I mean you get Maybe five good matches in the show And all three of Brett's are, are really good This is the best one in the show But what I really like about this too Darren is that we see now Brett the Hitman Hart Who I mean we know as the guy With the sharpshooter He wins all three matches tonight Without the sharpshooter Yeah and that is interesting um, You know I, I, I get not doing it on perfect They don't probably don't want that finish to be the same And I think I think the finish of this match might have been the best finish of any match on the card, so I have no issue there. Bam Bam probably a little big for the sharpshooter. Uh, Razor just lost in the sharpshooter at Royal Rumble, so there might have been some logic, you know, in all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, some of the matches, the, like like Andrew said, the finishes are a little wonky. Some of them are good. I don't have a problem with this match not ending in a sharpshooter again. I thought this match ended exactly the way it should have. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I still, part of me thinks this should have been the final match mm-hmm. of the night. Um, but, again, I understand why they did what they did. But, you know, perfect, you, you know, you put perfect and Brett together in a ring, man. You, the, these two matches are phenomenal, 91 and 93. And, uh, you know, it makes me realize I, I really wish perfect could have stayed healthy. Because, you know, lost a lot of time and probably a lot of matches with guys like Sean and Macho Man and other guys that could really work in the ring that we weren't really able to see much of um, because because Perfect was injured so much. You know, I was really I'm I'm sorry, Gino, but I was gearing up. I was gearing up for that rant about how Brett didn't win a single one of those matches with a sharpshooter because that was my chief problem with this show. You build up this guy's finishing move as this deadly submission move. You build up King of the Ring as this big alternative to the world title that Brett was obviously supposed to win and didn't. And you don't have him use the sharpshooter at all? That read- didn't make sense to me. I understand Bigelow might have been a little bit too big for it, but I think they could have potentially made it work. Razor was obviously not too big for it. 
could have made it work. I hated that. That was a big problem that I had with the main event, which we'll get to. This match didn't need it. I love the story that they told in this match to where Brett was just one second better than Mr. Perfect. That I thought was perfect. It didn't hurt the match at all whatsoever. Did it hurt Brett's performance on the evening? I think so. I'm, I like Brett very much. I respect everything he was able to do. I'm probably less high on Brett than the other two people that are on this show. And I think that's a big, big problem with the way that Brett was booked on this show. That's just my two cents. That was something that really stood out when I rewatched the show. I was going to try to get to it in the main event, but since you guys brought it up, you get that rant early. You're welcome. I, I believe that Brett made that call on his own. I think and I read that. I think I read that somewhere me a little. that, that and, he said that he wanted to show or something. He wanted to prove he could win without the sharpshooter and he wanted to win all three matches without it. I, I think I read, I, 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 and if anybody out there knows for sure, for, feel free to correct me on that. But I, I'm pretty positive. I at least either read that or heard it somewhere. Um, but no, I, it, it's, it's definitely strange. It's noticeable. We don't even really see him like he kind of teases it in each of the matches, but we don't really see him even like some matches he'll try to get it in and you could he won't get it locked and he'll have to try it two or three times and then he'll get it in. But we don't really even see him kind of going to it a whole a whole bunch um, really throughout the show. But you know we, we're gonna nitpick because we're always gonna do that. This is a fantastic match, really damn good match. Now I hope you guys are ready for the drinking game that comes up next with this promo. We've got Mean Gene with Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart. They are pushing the USA stuff just crazy. But we've got skinny Hulk Hogan. We've got super basic going through the motions. This is going to be one of my last times in the WWF. I don't give a crap about anything anymore, Hulk Hogan. They, between Jimmy Hart and Hogan, it's Hogan that talks first. Then Jimmy Hart cuts a promo about Hogan being born in the USA. They say America four times. USA three times, Dayton twice, and red, white, and blue twice. It's literally like the same words they're using. This like Hulk doesn't even get really intense. We don't even get any casual racism from Hulk in here. That's how you know he's not into this, because otherwise he's gonna be dropping some racism on Yokozuna. This was just a really like knowing that this is the end for Hogan and seeing this, you could really tell he was sort of checked out at this point. Hogan being Hogan, right? You know, uh, he's gonna he's gonna do the job to a you know a humongously fat guy who's built from Japan. I'm sure he wasn't happy about it. Um, I mean, you know, this is where WWE got themselves in, in in trouble here. The ending of WrestleMania Nine was done to get Brett to go over Hogan for the title. Mm-hmm. That was the whole point of doing what they did. Now that they've done it the way that they've done it, none of it makes any sense. Why would you have would, would you have Hogan beat Yoko at the end of WrestleMania just to have that moment, just to have Hogan drop it? I mean, think about it. That that's like having like the the, the low level baby face win a title on the pay per view on Sunday just so that he drops it the following night on Raw. You know, just to have the pay per view moment. That's fine with a mid-carder who you're giving a pop to, you know, like a Zack Ryder or something like that. You're not doing that with Hulk Hogan, and the reason you're not doing it is because this is not what was supposed to happen. So, because it messes everything else up. It's, it, 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 takes, exactly. it, it takes your storylines and what you've had planned for months before, and it throws them all out of whack. Exactly. So I'm coming from the standpoint watching this 
looking back on it, I'm pissed at Hogan because I know what he did. I'm watching this promo just saying to myself, God, this is awful. And I know the match to come is going to be awful. And I know Hogan just doesn't give a shit at this point. So for me, this is all just kind of going through the motions for Hulk. Going to, you know, take my take my ball and go home. And, and, you know, a year from now, he'll be he'll be in WCW. So, yeah, I mean, for what's about to come in the next 15 minutes, you know, this is one of, to me, honestly, in terms of just quality of matches, it's one of the lower points of the pay-per-view because to me, the match is, is complete garbage. Darren, I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I really was thinking you were going to go fully off the wall, Stephen A. Smith kind of thing. Uh, he'll get another round. He'll get another round. We got time. I understand that. <laughs> but I just got to tell you, you know, I understand you're starting a little slow and maybe saving some. Oh, yeah, wait, wait, wait till we talk. Wait till we talk about the finish of the match, and you're going to you're going to get your Stephen. <laughs> All right, I'm happy to hear that. The one thing that I will say about this promo, Hulk looks old. Old. And yep. I understand that there were advances made in cameras and whatnot through the mid-90s. I get that. Hulk looks drawn. You can tell that there are extracurricular things going on within WWE at the time with regard to performance-enhancing drugs. He is smaller and not in the I-need-to-lose-weight-and-eat-better-smaller He's smaller in the I'm off the gas smaller way. Yep. And that stuck out like a sore thumb to the point where the announcers had to work that into the match. Repeatedly. Hogan is smaller than he's ever been because he needs the speed to go after Yokozuna. What? Yeah. It didn't make sense. You could tell they were sort of scrambling. And going back to something Randy Savage said in a prior match, talking about saying the WWF title and King of the Ring being equally prestigious, doesn't that sort of seem like a shoot comment in hindsight mm -hmm. with whatever was happening with Brett? Yeah. I feel like you could interpret it that way. And speaking to Darren's point, you're right. This was a paint-by-numbers Hulk promo. It's the same thing he was doing hundreds of times a year. There was nothing original about it. There was something original about what would happen next, though. So Yoko is announced at 550 pounds. He is the biggest he's ever been at this point. He looks massive. Then Bobby says something weird. He says the longer the match goes, Yoko will have the advantage. Huh? I mean, it, they keep talking about how Yoko went 20 to 30 minutes at Mania 9. That match with Brett went 8 minutes and 55 seconds. <laughs> like, they say it multiple times. Yoko wrestled 20 minutes. Or, you know, and um, Macho says... People wanted Brett to have that rematch versus Hulk But Jack Tunney went with Yoko um, Bobby calls Ho uh, Hogan a coward JR says how can you say that And um, there are Japanese photographers All over the place Bobby says he hasn't seen this many Japanese people since Benihana um, Yoko's outpowering Hulk early uh, Brain says Hulk is dumb because he goes out and tries to win it When Yoko has to beat him I mean this is just big man stuff Hulk with right hands he bites Yoko he is again trying to slam him over and over. That becomes a, a storyline of like the second part of the show because Hulk's not able to slam him. Now it's gonna be can somebody slam, you know, Yokozuna? Macho keeps going back to that point. Hogan. I mean, Yoko had a bear hug at one point. We talked about the bear hug earlier. This one was for at least three minutes. I mean, it was just slow, not and it wasn't like 
when when Bret Hart is in a bear hug from Bam Bam and Bam Bam's got him picked up over his head, it looks like Bret's in pain. This is the opposite. It's like is his arm are his arms even like fully locked around Hogan? It was it's just sloppy. Um and Bobby was funny. He's super anti-USA because he has to stay heel. So he's, he's playing like against the Americans, which uh, I'm just like, come on, Bobby. Um, Yoko hits a, a belly-to-belly that actually looks pretty good. It was nasty. Hulk starts flailing around. And then he powers out of the pin. He hulks up. He gets uh, three big boots to Yoko Zuna. Then he hits a leg drop. And Yoko kicks out of that leg drop clean as can be. Clean as can be. Kicks right out. Hulk then signals that he's going to go for the body slam We get a photographer that jumps up on the ring apron And he walks right up into Hogan's face Hogan walks over and the camera explodes in Hulk's eye like a fire burst um, That was actually, I believe, Harvey Whippleman dressed up uh, in, uh, in fake cameraman And Yoko hits the leg drop the leg dro- A leg drop that uh, Hogan just hit on him that he kicked out of And it's the one, the two and the three, Bobby is ecstatic. He's going crazy. He says, we got a new champion. Majo's response is really funny. What the hell happened? <laughs> and uh, um, Hogan selling his eyes, burning. Yoko goes up for the bonsai drop. He hits it. And JR says, JR's got a couple good lines after this and, and a little after the show, uh, in the rest of the show. It says, Yoko has squashed Hulkamania. And Bobby just loves this. Bobby has been... What has it been since like 85, 86 That Bobby's been battling it out with Hogan mm-hmm. Yeah Yeah And that's, you know, that's that, that, You know, for, for Bobby, you know I'm, I'm surprised I'm surprised that they didn't make a reference Well, hey, I'm not surprised, but it's kind of funny You think about Hogan and, and Facing a guy that's 500 something pounds It's interesting that there wasn't really a reference made to him And Andre And maybe I, is this around the time that Andre died? Yes, right, right, yes. right around this time. I think. Yeah. So maybe yeah. Uh, you know the thought occurred to me, and maybe maybe that's why I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, here's what I'm going to say: Watch this match, and then watch the Yoko Brett match from WrestleMania Nine, and the different approaches that the guy who's losing the title takes to the match mm-hmm. in terms of the effort that they put out. Trying to make the other guy look good. Hogan is his selling of Yoko's stuff is like a fish flopping around out of water. It does look it, horrible when he was flailing. Awful. It's at, it's almost to the point where it seems like he's making a mockery of the whole damn thing. Because it's so bad. Like he can't actually be trying to act like that because it's so bad. So bad. I mean, getting punched and, like, you know, hands – he gets hit in the face and he's putting his hands to his throat and he's reaching out to the crowd like, please help me. Like, it's just – it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Have some respect for the guy who's, in his mind, in the ring after, by the way, debuting on Halloween of 92. So you're talking about a guy that's been in WWE for seven months who's in the ring in a title match on a pay-per-view with the biggest icon in wrestling history, and this is what you give the guy? This is the effort that you put into this match? And then, of course, he can't lose clean. Can't happen. 
has to be where he hulks up and they, they come up with this cockamamie thing with this guy who's supposed to be a photographer who's clearly wearing a disguise. <laughs> like, it's so blatantly, horrifically bad. And Hogan's like, I'm going to stop fighting the guy and walk over to this photographer to see what's <laughs> happening here. And then he gets this, like, like the, I mean, the camera blowing up in his face and Hogan's blind. Oh, my God. His eyesight could be lost forever. Give me a break. This is so awfully bad. And it's I guarantee you it's all because this is how Hogan wanted it to be. Couldn't put the guy over clean. Like, Brett, you know, I mean, I know you had the Fuji thing with the salt in the eyes, and that's fine. But my guess is that wasn't Brett saying to do that. That's probably what they came up with for the heel finish to put heat on Yoko and set the thing up with Hogan. This nonsense with the cameraman? Give me a freaking break. I mean, you know, have some respect for the guy you're in the ring with. Do the job one goddamn time in your life, especially when you're leaving the company. But I expect nothing less from, you know, Hulkamania. So, yeah, glad he got beat here. Glad he got squashed. There was no 10-year-old in the world happier than I was on this day. <laughs> Darren, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I, I'm I'm proud of you. I'm I'm happy that you you stepped up and delivered everything that I was expecting. Now, I'm actually going to go another direction here. I am not going to bash Hogan. I'm not going to compete with Darren on that. And he said a lot of the points. I'm going to go back to something that I talked about when we talked about WrestleMania 10. You have this roster of guys that could be such good main event heels. And in some cases, were good main event heels. Why did we need main event Yokozuna to be a thing? I over and under- over for like a two-year period. This wasn't, I you know. Don't un- I don't understand it. The guy's big superpower, his drawing card, the reason you're supposed to hate him is he's fat. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. That's the only thing Yokozuna brought to the table. Nothing else. He was not, and I'm going to stress this because I know Darren's on the edge of his seat here. He was not a big guy that could move. (laughs) He was a big guy that flopped around like a fish out of water. Hogan is having to bump his butt off just to make Yokozuna look the slightest bit imposing. Yoko's got one move, one move that could potentially be marketable. It's that belly-to-belly that you talked about, Gino. Mm -hmm. That's a decent move, Mm -hmm. and he makes that look pretty good. Otherwise, Yoko's got nothing. And the more I watch, the more I am just baffled at the fact that Yoko Zuna, who debuted in the company in late 1992, six, eight months later, he's the champion of the company. He's the guy beating Hulk Hogan in Hogan's last WWF, WWE match for nine years. And look at the roster of guys that you have. You have Mr. Perfect. We all know how good he is as a heel. You have Lex Luger. Much as we aren't the biggest fans of Luger, Luger could have been a credible main event heel right away when he got brought in. You have Razor Ramon. Who's already been, yeah. You have... 
admittedly not ready yet, but you've got Shawn Michaels yep. to potentially yeah. do stuff with. You've got Jerry the King Lawler, who's been one of the most well-known heels in the wrestling world for the better part of 20 years. And you're wasting your top heel spot and the biggest title in the company on Yokozuna? Even a Bam Bam here. like You could tease that these guys had a, a friendship earlier on, years before. You know what I mean? Like, Bam Bam can move. He can get you a little bit better match than him. He's been a company guy from 87. Remember, they had this thing at Survivor Series where Bam Bam was kind of teaming up with Hogan. They had a, there was a, you could have gone 10 deep. You know, you could have brought Macho Man back out for another, like, reignition of the few, late, whatever Piper, it was. Fine Piper. It's, by the, yeah. by the way, I'll give you another, here's a weird thing. If you watch the finish of this match, now I'm not going to say that this, and and it's probably just an anomaly, but if you watch the end of this match when Yoko wins it, there are quite a few people celebrating at ringside. It's weird to see, but there are a lot of hands raised, and, and there's like a cluster off to the right of people that are excited that Hogan lost. And I don't know why, per se, and I'm not saying it was it was prevalent throughout the building, but there were a lot of people sitting opposite the hard camera who were pumping their fists when Yoko won this match. Um, I agree with with Andrew that the, how they could not come up with a better idea than this. Now, maybe because of the whole Brett Hogan thing, they got flummoxed by it. But how much better would this show have been? I mean, just to give you an example, maybe you have a major heel win the King of the Ring and set up a program. Maybe you have Perfect win the King of the Ring and set up a program with Brett after he, if you have Brett versus Hogan for the title. I mean, it would have made the show much better. It would have made the next year much better. But that all goes into Hogan screwing up this entire thing. Now, Hogan did screw up the entire thing. My big problem is this wasn't something where, okay, yeah, hot shot the title to Yoko. We'll fix it at SummerSlam. That may have been the initial plan, but that's not what happened. Right. Yoko held the belt for nine months. Yep. Gee, you wonder why WCW sprung up as an alternative? That's and why. It, and what makes it worse is Yoko holds the belt, and you just continue to like screw over Brett for a long time. And, and Brett's a great company guy for it, and I'm sure he didn't mind he had a feud with Lawler, which was, you know, and then he ends up getting into it with Lawler for a while. But Brett's supposed to be, they keep beating down this point that whoever wins this is going to be the number one contender. They say it over and over, and Brett doesn't get a shot for until he wins the Rumble. It just doesn't yeah. make sense. It, and it, at, it really... SummerSlam, at SummerSlam 93, your king of the ring, and former WWF champion, and the biggest face you have in the company, is wrestling Doink the Clown and Jerry Lawler. It, it, I mean, it such a turn and a, and a tangent from where this show was supposed to go and where things were supposed to go to where they end up do going in the, the middle to the late part of 1993. We then get a Terry Taylor again. He's backstage with Mr. Perfect. This isn't much. Uh, Mr. Perfect's mad. He doesn't want to talk. Um, he just kind of shows that he's 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 not a heel, but he's just you know it's it's that that edgy baby face with with still most of the perfect that we know in there, and then we get a uh, Shawn Michaels backstage with Diesel with Mean Gene, 
And uh, Sean actually gives Hulk a couple rips. He says, you know, Hulk's a dinosaur and says that uh, he's the better uh, athlete and performer. And I believe this is the first time they name Diesel. They introduce him, and Sean says, uh, he, like, what a Mack truck runs on diesel fuel. And so Big Daddy Cool, who you talk about a year, right? Isn't it the next year he in the, the title match against Brett at that 94 King of the Ring when Owen ends up winning it? I oh, think yeah? it's Diesel versus yeah. Brett in a title match That's like Diesel's first foray into the title And then later in the year he ends up beating Backlund um, and, yeah. and winning it So um, another guy who just really changes it quite a bit in a year um, Then we get the eight-man tag It's the Steiners, the Smoking Guns Versus the Head Shrinkers and Money, Inc um, and, and through a lot of this they're, This is like the cool-down match after, you know Hogan maybe being gone They're talking a lot about that match still Bobby says don't worry Hulk We'll keep an eye out for you And he starts laughing um, He says seeing Hulk gets beat, it, gets beat is great um, Lots of talk about Hulk losing And Yoko throughout the match Steiner's with the early advantage JR's funny talking about um, Billy Gunn here hey, He went to Sam Houston State On a rodeo scholarship And Bobby says do you know anybody that didn't go to school Rodeo scholarship What did he major in roping And uh JR says he hears Brain would have Majored in uh, hears brain Would have majored in shooting the bull And uh, JR mentions good fact here IRS is a four time tag team champion With three different partners cool piece of Info he uh, Bobby Says yeah IRS went to the University of Wall Street and JR says no Syracuse <laughs> just real Real quick um, Bart guns being worked on by the heels And Bobby says I think He needs to go back to rodeo school Bobby um, says uh, when when they make the hot tag to to Billy Gunn, he says a fresh gun, a loaded gun. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, DiBiase locks in the million dollar dream. Just kind of a stupid finish here with this one too. As he locks it in, I thought this was great. Bobby starts singing country music as um, Billy Gunn's like in the the million dollar dream. DiBiase. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, DiBiase lets go of the hold. He tries to embarrass Billy Gunn even more But Billy's playing possum He ends up rolling up DiBiase They all brawl afterwards Offa steals the briefcase This was a cool down match They needed to give a little bit more time I think for Brett to kind of rest in between his matches too Not a whole lot going on here Two two things here Number one Is Rick Steiner in this match at all? I don't think so No, he's not So I don't know what that's about. Why this is an eight-man tag and not a tag title match between the Steiners and Money, Inc.? Well, I'm guessing because the next night, the Steiners are going to beat Money, Inc. for the title. And Vince probably wants to get some juice going on Monday Night Raw and have some title changes on the show. They do some weird stuff with with the tag titles at this point because the Steiners win it the next night. And then in a house show two nights later, Money, Inc. wins it back. And then three nights after that at a house show, the Steiners win it back. Really weird. So you have three title changes in five days, none of which come at a pay-per-view. One half of the Steiner brothers doesn't wrestle in the match at all. And you get up the Steiner brothers win the tag titles the next night. And then after one of the smoking guns gets the pin... On one of the tag team champions. None of this makes any sense whatsoever. And 
I know it's just a cooldown match, and I'm probably reading way too much into it. But for me, this match is an example of one of the writers or somebody in creative falling asleep at the wheel and not having a clue what they were doing. Because if you go back and look and, and add up what's going to come in the next five days, what takes place in this match makes absolutely no sense. Here's something else that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So the smoking guns come out. And what do they bring with them? Guns. Actual guns. Yeah. They're imagine firing something blanks. like that in this day and age? Yeah. Oh, you do something like that this day and age. The entire arena is getting locked down. And the power supply is getting shut off. And you get a visit from the police and the fire department. Yep. My goodness. You talk about things you could never, ever, 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 ever do today. Now, I like this match a bit more than you guys did. I laughed hard at the Bobby Heenan line about the rodeo scholarship. Billy Gunn, actually a former professional bull rider, which is a pretty cool little fact there. The thing with this match was it didn't have a prayer. After what happened with Hulk and Yoko, this crowd is dead. Yeah. it's And you see a little bit of the spillover the rest of the show, actually. Even in the, the Brett Bam Bam match to finish things off, the crowd is dead. Because how do you follow Hulk Hogan losing the title in what's winding up being his last match in the WWF, WWE, for nine years? You really don't. And as Darren would likely say, in some way, that's Hogan's fault. We are then backstage, Mean Gene with um, Yokozuna, Mr. Fuji, and Jack Tunney with the title. Good old Jack on the take, Tunney. Who uh, Fuji says America and Hulk Hogan is finished. Lots of Japanese cameramen backstage taking pictures. Um, mean Gene says, back up, back up a little bit. And uh, asks them, uh, and then they, they say they're going to celebrate in the USA. There's not a whole lot to, to that promo, just kind of a little celebration there. We then get to the icy title match, Crush versus Shawn Michaels, and you don't know, you don't remember a lot of like Crush's singles run as Kona Crush didn't go on very long. Is this the best match Crush has ever had? No question. I was going to say the same exact thing. I mean, this was like one of those surprisingly good matches when I watch it back. Going, he was big and kind of awkward in a lot of his other matches, but they were making a point to show off. Andrew, a big man that could move here. Everybody with, uh, drink with uh, you know the drop kicks and some of the, his athleticism. I was pleasantly surprised with this. You got Sean bumping all over the place in this match. I really, really was was very surprised. I thought this was going to be kind of one of those like ah, this will just be okay. Sean's not quite Sean yet, and this is Crush. This match right here might have been the reason why Vince was so high on him. It really might have been like this sole match going against a guy like Sean, where Crush looks like a star. He might have looked at him and said, "You know what? Hogan's gone. This is one of these guys that I'm going to pencil in on my short list." Which was the rumor that Crush was one of those names, and this was damn good, Darren. It, it was, and and I think looking back on it, if you take a look at the body of work here, Shawn Michaels from the summer of '92 to the summer of '93. Is he HBK yet? No. But he's really, really good. And Mm -hmm. you're starting to see that he's really good because he's making the people in the ring better. And, you know, crush on his own, 
Hits a couple of standing drop kicks, especially the first one that looks really good. Sean is bumping and selling the hell out of stuff, making Crush look really good. The storyline with Diesel on the outside and how that's going to continue to play up is very well done. For me, this is a highly entertaining match that I was not expecting. Uh, you know, I, I thought Crush's Tilt-A-World backbreaker was a really cool move. Yeah. Not, not easy at all to pick up a guy, twirl him around like that, and then land him on your knee. Um, you know, but I, I yes, I without question, Crush's best match. You're seeing more now, even more than glimpses. You're seeing why Shawn Michaels becomes you know, HBK, Shawn Michaels. Um, I Look, I could do without doing, distracting him, you know, yeah. to get the wall. But, okay, whatever. Uh, but that being said, uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this match. The biggest thing I took away from this match is the greatest life lesson Bobby Heenan ever taught anyone. Remember, a friend in need is a pest. <laughs> he said that line a lot but it, it was in this match it's, it's so good it's it's perfect brain not too long after this match crush would get popped for having things he shouldn't have had yep. in the name of weapons and anabolic steroids it is so blatantly obvious just looking at the guy that he's on the gas mm-hmm. that, that's not muscle that's on him it is sheer bulk. And yep, you're right. No it's not way... toned. It's just like he's just big. Yeah, and there's yeah. no way that much bulk should have fit on his body. And you can tell Sean was having some trouble working with a guy that had that kind of dimension because early in the match, so he wasn't even fatigued or anything like that, Sean goes up for a leapfrog and barely clears crush. It's not, it, it's close. Crush almost crotches HBK on the way by. Crush crotches HBK on the way by. It's an entirely different match. <laughs> the match was okay. I, I wasn't as enamored by Crush as you two were. I was actually a bigger fan of Crush when he started teaming with Brian Clark, a.k.a. Raph, in Chronic. And later to WCW, they had a couple of decent matches as the big guys who can move resident tag champions of WCW. Unfortunately, WWE brought them in for a match against The Undertaker and Kane that may be the worst tag match in the history of WWE. They stiffed him, right? Yeah. If you want to look at that match, it's somewhere on the network. Hide the women and children. It is horrendous. But this match, you could tell they were trying to make Crush into somebody. Randy Savage multiple occasions goes, he could slam Yokozuna. <laughs> there we go. Nice. Your Randy Savage impression is better. Mine is eh. But you get the idea. They were trying to set this up, and they were trying to make him a passable main event face. But here's the thing. If you want him to be a main event face, why are you booking him to lose thanks to interference from Doink? It was very, that's a great point. It's very mixed signals, too, with him. You, you, you got Macho, who's his buddy, selling him, too, because, like, Macho and Crush are really close. They have the match in Mania 94, and Macho's doing a, doing a good job of making Crush seem like a big deal. You know, he keeps saying it, as you mentioned, mentioning Yokozuna. He thinks he could beat Yokozuna. But the Doink thing is the only thing that bothered me. I, I just... I thought the finish actually was kind of creative in that it wasn't like Crush 
turns around and gets hit He gets hit from behind in the back of the head And then he goes headfirst into the turnbuckle Which I liked I like that part of it I just don't like the fact that Doink Who feels like he's on a lower level Is interacting with Crush But maybe it's because they thought higher of Doink Who's actually going to be in a match with Bret Hart At SummerSlam You know, not long after this I I completely agree with that point Andrew Um, But yeah, I mean I think for me it was more of I don't remember any times where I was impressed by Crush and, And I think I went into this match almost dreading it And there were definite most of the match where I was thinking Wow, this was a lot better than I was expecting it to be um, So yeah We always need to have a little differing of opinions Sometimes as uh, we get set for the main event Now we have Mean Gene with backstage with Bam Bam He's talking about the bye and Bam Bam just says He's going to be the first king of the ring So it's the main event the king of the ring final Brett the Hitman Hart versus Bam 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 had that bye because Tatanka and Lex Luger had the double count out so Bam Bam Is going to get The uh, the easier road to the final He only had to wrestle once Where Brett had to wrestle twice And JR mentions Brett's already wrestled For 36 minutes tonight Between his two matches And I love when JR would do this too He teases that they may not have enough time If the match goes long It just gives it more of a real feeling right? Hey if this match is still going We're going to run out of time here on pay-per-view We're not even going to be able to finish it It, just, it feels more real Bam Bam works on Brett to start and I mean the first A lot of this match Is Brett Selling and Bam Bam using those weight Big man And Bam Bam does a good job It's not like a slow plotting match Even for a guy who's worked earlier Brett's doing a hell of a job The announcers they can't believe Brett keeps kicking out He ends up kind of turning things around Outside the ring He tosses Bam Bam into the railing And then uh, Brett ends up Hitting uh, he, he hits a, a forearm off the apron Onto Bam Bam and he's he's Selling it man he looks so tired he's got That mouth open where he's just Taking the deep breaths and he leaps off The apron Bam Bam catches him uh, Drives him into the ring post And then Luna comes down and nails Brett with a chair while he's outside of the Ring so Bam Bam Brett gets back in the ring Bam Bam with The headbutt off the top and the one The two the three what the hell, Darren? We got a clean pin. I thought Brett the Hart won. Brett the Hitman Hart won the King of the Ring here. Yeah. So this match bothers me. Um, I mean, Brett basically gets his ass kicked the entire match, mm-hmm. um, which I don't really get the booking. Um, I don't get, you know, this guy. You're putting the King of the Ring on him. You know, you obviously care a great deal about him because you basically set up this pay-per-view to exist for him and you have him just go out there for 15 minutes or close to it and just take a thumping from this guy uh from a i don't get the whole chair shot one two three hefner comes out and says okay well he performed something illegal to get the win but we're gonna let the match continue we're not disqualifying bam bam for using a chair yeah. We're just going to pick the match up from here and let it continue. And then Brett just continues to get whipped around from turnbuckle to turnbuckle, you know, getting beat up. And, you know, at one point he tries to put the sharpshooter on and he can't. And, um, you know, you get more bear hugs and stuff like that. Brett's like, looks like he's completely out of it. And, and then he gets like a, a, a weird roll up kind of victory thing after, you know, putting the sleeper on. And I mean, 
you know, gets in some offense and, and, and then – I don't know. It, I just don't like the way the match is booked. Um, I, I would have liked for Brett to have gotten in, you know, far more offense than he did. Um, for me, the ending was weird. Uh, I thought the entire match was weird. But when he gets the pin, everybody pops and, you know, maybe they forget for a minute that Hogan lost and they go home, you know, kind of happy. But, uh, you know, as much as I love Brett – uh, I'm not putting it on him. Uh, I just don't like how they booked this match. I know Brett really likes this match, and for obvious reasons. He and Bam Bam did have a lot of chemistry, and I get kind of where they were going. They were trying to make Brett Hart work sort of a Ricky Morton-style match where he just gets the crap kicked out of him and the crowd gets involved just trying to will him back to life. They do that, face wins, everyone goes home happy, whatever. The problem is that wasn't going to happen because their hero just got vanquished by the big fat lard from Japan. That wasn't going to work here. And I'm happy that you said something about that, Darren, because Mm -hmm. I'm watching this and I'm going, Brett and Bam Bam had really good chemistry together. I remember liking this match far more than I do. What am I missing here? But it's a case where... If you watch the match in a vacuum without knowing anything else that happened earlier on in the show, I think you like the match far more. But seeing Brett work the match that he did with Mr. Perfect, seeing the crowd just get killed by Yoko beating Hulk Hogan, it suffers a little bit when you do a straight start to finish rewatch. Now, Brett obviously gets his win. He gets the title of King of the Ring. They do the coronation that we'll talk about in a little bit, and that's fine. But there was a lot about this match that in hindsight, I just don't understand. So we hear them talk a, a couple times about how you could tell that they're, they're worried about the time expiring and maybe getting off the air in time. So, you know, what ends up happening is the, the match gets restarted. Bobby's pissed off. He can't believe it. He says, Brett is not human as Brett continues to kind of kick out. He does a top row, uh, a crossbody over the top rope, which was pretty cool. And then we get a couple of his, he's nuts. He's nuts. This isn't the anvil. This is Brett, the hitman heart. But uh, I guess it's all good for the uh, the heart foundation, anyone in, uh, of the hearts. Um, Bulldog off the top rope, tries to get the sharpshooter. Bam powers out of it. And um, Brett gets up on the shoulders, and he, he rolls him up. So another win without the sharpshooter. Macho Man runs in and hugs Brett. And then Brett is quickly grabbed by uh, an official and escorted to the throne area where he's going to have his celebration. He gets the crown, he gets the robe, he gets the scepter. There's not a lot of pay-per-view time. You could tell they're in a hurry. Mean Gene proclaims, ye Brett Hart the king. And Jerry Lawler shows up. He starts talking trash, and he says he's the true king. And then Brett says, well, why didn't you get into the tournament? And he calls Jerry the Burger King. So the crowd gets uh, the Burger King chants going. And then Jerry attacks Brett. There's a couple spots that look pretty brutal in this I mean, he took the chair I don't know how much that chair weighed But it wasn't like a regular chair It looked like, you know, like a throne chair Maybe it was very light He seemed like he hit him right in the middle of the back with it He's choking Brett with a scepter And then he kicks Brett in the face off the platform Where the the throne was As the crowd chants Burger King So, um, poor Brett was supposed to have his moment celebrating But, uh, Jerry Lawler gets the, uh, the better of him Here to, to close out the show And um, unfortunately, Darren, as you mentioned, I guess we could see they were already starting to go a little bit in a different way, but we don't get to see Brett Hogan or Brett 
with a main event title shot at SummerSlam. We see, you know, Brett in this kind of elongated feud with Lawler, which ends up really dragging out like years. Yeah, yeah, it, it continues to go on and on, and um, yeah, I, I mean, number one, man, Brett must have woke up sore the next morning, right? Um, to say the least. Number two, I, I mean, look, for me at this point, Lawler was not a believable foe for Bret Hart at this point. Um, I, you know, this is not 1983 Jerry Lawler. You know, he's out of shape. He looks old. Um, and on top of it, you know, this guy, it, it, it just didn't work for a lot of different reasons. It wasn't believable to me. And, and the stuff that Lawler was doing here, Felt like 1985 heel stuff, like just a bad shtick that showed that they just didn't have a clue what to do now with Brett because everything got screwed up. So the fact that we have Lawler and Brett go on for months, I'm just going to go ahead and blame that on Hogan, too. (laughs) <laughs> Let's just add that to the list of things that we can blame on Hulk Hogan. So, Andrew, I know you you got a few minutes. Give us your kind of p- big picture thoughts, and then close out this segment and give us your kind of final sure. goodbye thoughts. Couple of quick things on this segment. First of all, the very first show that I went to as a kid was an episode of Monday Night Raw at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany. This was, I believe, in late 1996, which would have been three and a half years after this. And the crowd was still doing the Burger King chance. <laughs> so that shows, while Brett might not have been the world's greatest promo, he had a couple of good lines from time to time. Now, the other thing about this that I, I'll always stick with me is Brett Hart's robe sort of looked like a discount curtain with tons of glitter and sequins <laughs> on it. The closer you look at it, it's just like... Eh. How? Why? You know that there are robes out there that you can buy and look really expensive. You had Ric Flair on the payroll. Find out who was doing his robes. Call her up. You know, it's not hard. And it just, it looked cheap. It looked chintzy. And it wasn't a great payoff for everything that they were trying to do. This show, I was really looking forward to it. Had a couple of bright spots. The Heart Perfect match is sort of a hidden gem, if you can call it that. And this served its purpose of getting Brett over as sort of an Iron Man type uh, passing of the torch without a passing of the torch. Thanks, Hulk. But outside of that, there were a couple of historical curiosities here. It was good seeing Brett at the top of his game. It, It was just a good show, though. It wasn't a great show. I was hoping for a great show. And, Gino, this is somehow your fault. Or do we want to blame that one on Hogan, too? <laughs> it's it, it's Hogan's fault, definitely. Okay, I, I think works. I was yeah, I was a little higher on it than you were. Um, but, uh, Darren, give us some closing thoughts. And then you are up, my friend. It's going to be your selection for next week. So if you, have it, if you know who, you could let us know because then Andrew can get on his way. He'll know what to do for his research. And then you give us uh, your closing thoughts on the show. Sure, we'll start with that. So... Um, given the, the time frame that we're in, we were talking about Shawn Michaels kind of coming into his own and a lot of stuff going on with Brett here. And Brett and Shawn had a match that, in my opinion, is probably the best match that they've ever had. And I actually looked it up, and believe it or not, Dave Meltzer agreed with me. Uh, it was only ranked behind his match with Austin at WrestleMania and his two matches with Owen at SummerSlam and WrestleMania. 
And that was the championship match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series 1990. Nice. I like that. Uh, I like it's that. a bit of a it's a bit of a curveball pay-per-view, but it's a pay-per-view that has some cool stuff. It's got a casket match, it's got a nightstick match, it's got Bret and Shawn, and you got perfect Randy Savage, Razor, and Ric Flair in a match together with some cool storylines and some crazy stuff. That's still going on behind the scenes. So keeping in that time frame, I know it's a little bit of an oddball, but I it's like actually it. it's actually a really good pay-per-view that people don't talk about enough. And the Brett Sean match, which is almost 30 minutes long, is absolutely tremendous. Andrew, you know your homework now. Yes, I do. And I'm looking forward to the show. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at @AndrewChampagne. If it sounds like we're trying to rush, that's because I've got Jonathan Wong waiting for me. He grade, grade one, one winner game. now. Yep, been a grade one gamely with Keeper of the Stars. Really excited to talk with him. He's been uh, he's been a buddy of mine since I moved up here to Northern California about two and a half years ago. Myself and JD Fox will have that interview up on our Champagne and JD podcast. You can subscribe on YouTube. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I am also looking at Saturday's Churchill card. I'm really excited about that because I'm part of a handicapping contest. This is round one. So hopefully I can lay the smack down on somebody or a couple of people over the course of this contest. But uh, Survivor Series, I'm, I'm all for it. Sounds like a good pick. That's perfect. And you can, uh, while you're finishing up some of your handicapping too, you could throw on uh, Darren and I as we go through the late pick five there at Churchill for Saturday. To maybe Give we me can some lead, horses, guys. We can I lead you them. to a price or two. So uh, good luck, buddy. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you next week. Andrew, enjoy that interview with Jonathan. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And Darren, thanks for not letting me down with the Hogan rant. You got it, buddy. Take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs> so that was King of the Ring 93. Um, we are going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. And I'm going to be taking advantage of Darren. You're probably going to hear this wrestling interview after we've already talked about uh, about horse racing. But uh, Darren's going to be pulling double duty again this week on That's What G Said. So uh, don't go anywhere, folks. We'll be right back on That's What G Said. And that's going to do it for this episode of That's What G Said Podcast. A big thank you to Scott Shapiro for helping us out on both shows this week with the races. Darren Zocali, he helped us out with Santa Anita Racing, Churchill Racing, and the King of the Ring 1993 recap. Andrew Champagne, who's always on those uh, recaps, uh, the old wrestling shows. And don't forget, it is currently the best football movies bracket. Get to Twitter, follow me. Uh, it's me, Gino B, and vote in all those pools. We literally have 32 polls out right now for that first round. It'll be it'll be a another round every single day. So follow along, and let's see which make the final four and the winner of the best football movies bracket. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, review, share the show anywhere you can with your friends. Thanks a lot, folks. Have a great weekend. Let's make some money at Santa Anita, Churchill Downs, and then we, we'll see you back next week. Joey! Close us out, my friend.